0: and welcome back to the just interesting people podcast my name is rosie i'm here with my co-host and husband jeremy as always thank you so much for tuning in today today we are talking to sari thank you sorry for being here um jeremy's going to introduce her properly as always but we really hope you enjoyed this episode
1: thank you everyone for tuning in once again and thank you so much sari it's really nice to meet you in person eventually yes <laughs> um we have spent the last 11 weekends Together, And when I say that, I mean Saturday, Sunday, pretty much nine hours <laughs> together on Zoom through the screen.
2: Yes, 200 hours plus of <laughs> yeah. our lives together in 11 weeks.
1: Um, Sari was one of the facilitator for our yoga teacher training that we completed today. As we recall it, we literally had the graduation afternoon a few Yay! hours ago. <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, we actually never met in person, uh, so it's nice to eventually see you and hug you.
2: Yes, it was awesome. <laughs> and
1: the the reason you're here today is because the, so we we're gonna have some special episode coming about the training, uh, and you're gonna come back. Yes, <laughs> actually, as a guest again. Um, the the training was called a conscious uh, yoga teacher training because it wasn't just about. The business of yoga and how to open a studio and do a handstand and everything. Right. Uh, the whole point was uh, to educate us about what yoga can bring to everyone in life and how to make it accessible and how to use the principle of yoga to be a better human being. I'm trying to make it quick, but right. <laughs> let's let's <laughs> say this. Let's put it this way. And so we had various talks. We. Really very different topics, and and one of the weekend, about halfway through, I think the training was about um, eating disorder and ableism, and you 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 were leading this weekend, uh, all the weekends that you were leading, um, and yeah, you shared some personal experiences and stories by you, uh, and I reached out saying, like, "Would you mind to? Would you be interested in sharing that to, of to the world?" Of <laughs> so, here <laughs> so here we are. So here we are. Um, so yeah I'll I'll let you start wherever you feel it's appropriate to start.
0: First of all, where are you from? That's why I want to know where <laughs> were you. Where were you born? Let's start right at the beginning. <laughs>
2: all right. Well, first of all, thank you for for having me, and this is a distinct pleasure. And what an auspicious day out of all days that we could have picked to do this. Your your graduation day, the beginning of this amazing journey, which never never ends. <laughs> we'll we'll probably get to that in, in this story. But um, I was born in Burbank, uh, California and um, moved to Miami probably maybe two or three years after I was born, my father worked for the airlines. um, So ended up uh, working for Eastern Airlines and then we moved uh, to Miami, he got transferred. Um, but I'm from two Cuban-American, or, well, not Cuban-American, I'm Cuban-American, my parents are of Cuban descent, uh, they're from a place in Cuba called Manzanillo, and um, they were raised during the whole Castro regime. So they went through a, a lot as children, exiled to this country, and um, met in, I believe they met in Miami first. And I was going to say, most Cuban moved to right. Florida, to California. <laughs> <It was. laughs> I think they met in Miami first, and then they remet again in in California, and then their love affair started there. And then I I slowly came after <laughs> the marriage, um, the marriage and whatnot. But um, spent most of my or all of my childhood here in in Miami. Um, very very um, from what all outside aspects would say a very normal. Uh, childhood but i think as as children of immigrants what we think is sometimes a very normal childhood i Um, don't know
1: how many times we heard this term
2: right i think
0: everyone's idea of normal anything is subjective to the person but especially childhood it's often like i grew up in a very normal household with you know private jets and all these holidays and you're like that's not normal or quite the opposite of being like i was kept in a room for 10 like everyone's version of normal is completely different like it's so interesting.
2: It is very subjective, and even even when I talk to my parents in adulthood about their own childhood, it's funny how they normalize things that just my head is completely blown open when they they talk about it. Um, you know, they had a very difficult um, immigration to this country. My mom came at a very young age; I believe she was about seven or eight years old. There was a point in time where um, Fidel Castro, during the whole revolution decided, um, you know what? You want your children to have all this freedom. I'm going to open the floodgates. Parents stay, but children can go. And as a parent, I can't imagine what that would be like, making that decision and saying, okay, I'm going to send my child in in search of a better life, in search of a better place, in, in the hopes that we're actually going to be able to reunite. Again, were, You know, my mom was sent on blind faith, and this was through a mission with the Catholic Church so they kind of had the faith that everything would, would come together again. Um, her arrival in this country was nothing short of of disastrous. I look at, at pictures of that time and, you know, there's a lot of racism, a lot of things going on and not just, you know, towards African-Americans, towards anybody that didn't look like the status quo here. So here's my mom getting off a plane and there's people protesting this whole thing <laughs> kind of happening. And she lived with... Um, her family here in Miami and it was, it was too much, uh, for them. And then she was sent to live in an orphanage in Saginaw, Michigan. She didn't know any English, um, and had some really, really rough years in, in the orphanage. I know she, she downplays a lot of it. She's so strong and such a survivor and, um, she makes it seem like it was not a big deal, but I know it was a very big deal. She can't remember, parts of that whole experience. And we're talking about not remembering, you know, two, three, four years at a time, which I think we went into a lot of depth with our trauma training about just blocking out certain periods of time, dissociating of just not remember, like putting it on a shelf um, and just putting it for safekeeping so that it doesn't you know, hurt us in the long run. So she had a really traumatic um, <laughs> just introduction to life in America and my father, very much the same thing. I think he came here at about uh, 17 or 18 years old, uh, lived in in New York, New Jersey area, Spent a lot of time just working in really just shitty jobs in New York City in the late 60s, early 70s, which New York was very rough Um, in those days. Didn't know a lot of English um, and then, you know, joined the army. Was was recruited into the army because this is the way this country works. You get here, you're a body, you know, you're now. So like, let's let's shuffle you into the process. So he had a really rude Um, kind of awakening as well. And I think they both struggled um, very much in their early youth and in early childhood. And I think, um, you know, especially now as a parent, you try the best you can with the tools that you are are given and every every generation does a little bit better uh, than the generation before, hopefully, you know, a lot better, but they're beautiful and incredible people, but they were very hurt people. Um, trying the best that they can, and I don't want to say that I had just a, a, an awful, awful childhood, but there were parts of my childhood that were that were rough.
1: <laughs> no, but like like you said, I mean, there's no manual for a start. There's no, you know, uh, it doesn't it doesn't come with a guide and step one, step two, step three. So you have to figure out the and do the best that you can. And obviously, now we have way more resources than the previous generation had and the previous and previous etc and and then obviously yeah like culturally speaking as well uh the the, the, again the normal way quote-unquote to raise a child in a country can be very different from a country to another uh from a country from a a culture like the latin culture can be very different than some you know for example in europe i guess if you go to like your eastern country it's going to be extremely different as well the, the normal way to raise a child is it's not the same at all uh so yeah i'm sure they were doing the best they could just like they, they most were. people
2: and i think it changes like you said from generation to generation but things that were um you know they they came from essentially like a, a, a communism and war-torn country so they're worrying about things like how to put a meal on the table scarcity Um, and then you bring all those things. like a lot of my friends that aren't necessarily, you know, Cuban immigrants, a lot of my friends that come from other cultures where there was scarcity, where there's a war torn environment. So the priorities become the basic needs. Like, how am I going to have money? How am I going to put food on the table? How am I gonna have a roof over my head? And everything else just becomes like bows and ribbons and unicorns and sprinkles and and things of the sort. So I think that those are the things that my parents were were most worried about uh, with us growing up. I have a sister who's, we're 18 months apart, so I turn, I I have a problem realizing my age, I'm 40. (laughs) I'm 43 now, so my sister's 41, about to turn 42. So we're kind of like these weird, not Irish twins, but we're very, very close in age. Um, and we had very different experiences growing up in the same household. So we know through our our trauma training as, as yoga teachers now, (laughs) it feels so good to say three of us are yoga teachers, that two people can grow up in the same household and have two completely different experiences and experience the same things. It depends on age, environmental factors, genetic factors, um, you know, I, it could have been that I had a different experience because I was the older one. I was slightly more mature in certain ways or maybe I guarded her or she guarded me. You might have
1: protected her. In because
2: things. children have an, an instinct to to protect each other. But um, I think, you know, as as we started to grow and I started to kind of reach that age where you start to realize kind of who you who you are and what makes you tick. I don't know what age exactly that was at, but I knew from a very young age that I was a very emotional child and rosie and i have <laughs> have the the water well the waterworks built into our our dna we have a box of tissues on right. standby right just in case um but i, I felt things um things in, a, in a, such a massive way almost so massive that they would shut me down like i would feel this this wave of emotion come over me i think we we um a, We found a dog on the street once and we took the dog in and the dog got really, really sick. And I just remember just being so overcome with emotion about this animal that I just couldn't even, I couldn't process um, things with older people. I I would relate to my grandmother more, with older people more. I couldn't relate with my peers. I felt like kind of an old, wise soul trapped in this little person's body and it was it was frightening because I didn't see my parents express emotion
1: I was gonna say that it's so interesting because cliche here I'm making a big generalization but I'm pretty sure I'm pretty close from the truth (laughs) coming from also immigrate immigrant latin like family uh, there is a lot of machism like on the men's side in latin country uh emotions or signs of weakness uh, you don't cry you work hard you shut up and you <laughs> and you're there and you're the rock and and, and even usually the is usually like you know you i mean especially at a few generations ago is you you you're in the kitchen you take care of the kids but you keep it for yourself and and you swallow your your, your feelings i mean that's a lot of latin generation that's how it works uh, my grandparents are Portuguese and that's the way it works. Um, and that's the way I've been raised. Like, there's no much emotion in my house. Uh, but it's interesting because on my side, I retweet that. Like, I don't show emotions. I don't cry. I don't say I love you. I I, I, I really, really struggle uh, with emotion. <laughs> so our training must uh, have been <laughs> a hellhole. <laughs> a basic hellhole for you. I, it's so interesting that, yeah, I... Uh, it, you 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 had this upbringing of not showing emotions but it is showing up in a totally different way from for you right I find that fascinating
2: yeah I um I I knew my parents didn't want to show a lot of emotion because a I, I culturally not 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 acceptable and not just even in in, in many cultures. Um just, you know, society over time, that patriarchal role of the man, you know, and, and the woman being submissive and that that whole power play. I definitely felt that uh, growing up and I, I knew it's very funny. I think I told this story to somebody in to Claudia in our training. We were having a, a discussion about something, and I think one of the first times my parents were like, oh shit. Like, we don't know what we're going to do with her. Um, I had a very Roman Catholic upbringing. We were at church every Sunday. Um, It was just, like, clockwork. Um, My sister and I had a very hard time being in church because we would laugh, um... (laughs) It was just like uncontrollable laughter, which would drive my parents insane. Like you could see my father's eye, like out of the side of his eye, it was just like burning. And there would be times that he, his like hand was like Inspector Gadget hand. It would like grow, 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 just whack us at the end of the side of the pew. I'm like laughing about this now, but it wasn't funny at the time. But at the end of the mass, you would typically go and go shake hands with the priest and you could you know whatever if you had a question you can go ask your question nobody's expecting that at age five i'm gonna ask a question or just go shake the hand and then i stop my parents and i stopped the priest and i shake his hand and i'm like how come there were no female apostles and my parents were mortified <laughs> i mean they were just mortified i could tell my dad was like like wait until we get back in the car like i'm gonna and the priest just i this the first time i ever saw an adult just really flounder and not have an answer and adults have answers for everything so i was just like oh shit like Hmm. Got a point here. <laughs> you know, I like I'm I'm on to something, but every t- every time I felt like I was on to something in childhood, like, okay, there's gotta be something bigger, better, a better a better explanation for you can't just accept everything that, that's presented to you. There's gotta be a little bit of balance and counterpoint. I was met with this is just the way that it is. So I, I never understood um, you know, having a range of emotions. I understood happy was satisfactory. Um, Anger was maybe okay because I I saw a lot of anger in my household, a lot of explosiveness, a lot of, you know, back and forth between my parents. I never saw crying. Crying was equated with weakness. Um, It was equated with having a loss of control. um, And that's not that's not what you come to this country for. You come to this country to be happy, to be proud, to excel, you know, like the typical, like all the things like, that, you know, I, like this, there's immigrant guilt, there's Latin guilt, there's all sorts of guilt that are like slathered on like a big peanut butter and jelly sandwich and then, but how does a child
1: process that? Process that?
2: So I kind of felt like this heavy cloud of like the guilt of, look at all my parents have, have done, have sacrificed. Um, and then I felt um, this other weird thing is I could feel their emotions. So if they would get in a fight, it wasn't just them getting in a fight. I It was like I was a magnet. I would pick up whatever vibe they were giving. My sister didn't. My sister was able to be really neutral, just have that emotional divide and be like, oh, they're in a fight. And I was just I felt it. I felt it deep inside my core. And then I just didn't know what to do with that. And I I felt like I didn't know what to do with a lot of my emotions my entire childhood. I would like lie in bed and pray for like a spaceship to just (laughs) land, pick me up and get me the fuck out of here.
1: (laughs) Yeah, because also I guess it was confusing because you didn't have any education on that. Because it, it wasn't something that was talked about. So you can't even ask your, your parents or reach out to anyone saying like, I'm, I'm feeling those things because you don't have the world usually at this time. So I'm feeling that, what's going on? But yeah, if, right. if you can't relate to anyone, if it, there's no one you can talk to. It must be so confusing.
2: It, it was confusing. And I think that my parents didn't have a, a general sense of their own emotions on what, what that was actually look like and what kind of emotional spectrum was okay for them. So as children, you model, you model after your parents, like we've seen it, we see babies do it all the time. You know, the parents do one thing and then the the baby just imitates what the parents are doing. So I, I, I try to keep it under wraps, but I spent most of my life feeling like I was this little plastic bag that was just about to explode all the time and there was no outlet for it. I think the only, funny enough, I've been thinking about this a lot, the only time that I did feel that there was an outlet for it was with physical movement. (laughs) And I was a dancer from a very, very young age, so that's the only time I felt that, that flow state, that like, You know, when you get into the flow state, when we're doing something that we really, really love, whether it's riding or paddleboarding or doing yoga or when we're, you know, at our life's passion where we feel like we're doing something that like speaks to our heart. As a child, that's the only time that I felt that I was getting there was with physical movement, with dance, which ironically (laughs) enough, I would end up, you know you know moving towards more of a track of physical movement and connecting with with my body but that was probably one of the only times as a kid where i felt free where i felt uh, really safe where i can experience a gamut of emotions but at the same time it was like within the world of dance that's an eating disorder in and of <laughs> in and of itself it was a it's a very um, very crazy universe
1: Judgmental, competitive <laughs> Yeah, I remember the anecdote you shared about Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll come to that but.
2: Yeah, that my, my yeah. dance story do, Should I share it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah Well, I mean, there was a, a point where um, I was taking um, ballet classes And um, I think it was maybe like about seven or eight and it was in, within the public school system, kind of like their aftercare curriculum, they had um, ballet classes. So you didn't even have to go to that particular school. They just had an after-school curriculum and you can pay and sign up or whatnot. And I took um, dance classes from a local um, ballet teacher. He also taught at the university level as well. And i I loved this guy i respected him i i i I just idolized him he like he would walk in the room and just kind of like glide across this the surface um of course a gay man and a love of my heart which i i gravitate towards um towards certain people and so i just had so much i i found him so austere i i just like reveled in his appearance i admired him i felt like he was a mentor and I just had so much love and admiration for him, and we're you know at the bar one day, and we're I have my leg up on the bar, and we're doing some stretches, this, that, and the other. And the moms would hang out in in the back, and they would like one would be knitting or this with that, or you know this was pre cell phone yeah. <laughs> days. They'd be having their like they chat. Were talking, right, right. They'd be actually talking, weird, <laughs> right, and. um I remember, like, this is when they used to put the record on to play the music. So he had, like, some whatever ba- ballet-ish classical music record. And I remember he took the needle off the record, paused the entire class, and was like, my mom's name is Mercedes. Mercedes, like, what are you feeding her? Like, you have to stop feeding her beans and rice because her ass is just huge. And I remember just, like, when the DJ, the needle scratches everything, pause. And I just remember being frozen in time, and it felt like forever. And I remember peering over the back of my shoulder because all the moms were behind. And I'm like, okay, my mom's going to come to the rescue. (laughs) The other moms are going to come to the rescue. Somebody's going to say something. And nobody said anything. And I don't think it wasn't for want. I think we were still living at a time where... You know, we didn't talk that much about things. I think women were much more, you know, seen but not heard. It was a power play. It was was a a power play. It was a power play, but I always thought it later on in life when I realized that that I'm like, oh, he's gay, that I, I found it so interesting that somebody that comes from a group that was marginalized actually took this stance of like, okay, let me... Let me speak to this group of women and then also use kind of like a body shot here when I'm part of a group that's completely marginalized. So I replay that a lot in my head. Like what kind of fucked up dynamics have we we taught each other over time that I come from a marginalized community, but I'm going to go into a group of women where there's children and then use some type of slur regarding well, body
1: there's a famous thing of hurt people hurt people a and, hundred. I mean, I've been taking shit on my life so now it's my turn to It's my
2: turn <laughs> to, to be a
1: dick with other people right. it's, it's sad but that's a, it can be as simple as that
2: right but that's one of the first times in my life that I remembered somebody actually really really heavily commenting on my body and I was little I was seven or eight and it was really, really young and then I started to catch on to like, holy shit, everybody's commenting about everybody else's bodies all the time. Mm.
0: <laughs> so before that, had you ever thought anything about your body? I mean, it's a young age to even consider yeah. your body. I don't think I did until I was I don't know, like twelve like probably puberty, I started thinking about my body. But did you had you thought about it before that? Or was I, it that comment and then you started thinking, Oh, well maybe there is something wrong or I don't know.
2: I um I was raised in a very close-knit family as far as, you know, obviously my sister, major, you know, player in, in my life. But then I spent a lot of time around my first cousins. And um, my two first cousins were also in ballet. Genetically, they looked very different than my sister and I. They were very slim, slim built, um, you know, and, and they're just proportioned to just, they're, we're not gonna look the same. We're from two genetic. Yes, we have some of the same genetic code, but each family looks a little different. And this is where I picked up on. I started to pick up on. Well, they look a little different than me. Like the proportions are a little different. And then people are constantly talking about proportions. I started to like. That was the 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 first comment that I think started the thought pattern. Then I started to hear things on the radio, and then I started to hear things within my own family, and then I would hear it at school, and then you know it was that that weird transitional age where like eight, nine, ten women start becoming women, and things start changing and shifting, and hips get wider, and boobs come in, and and that's just you know that that was like it started this dialogue and chatter somewhere in my head. Um, where it was like, well, maybe this is why all these things are going on around me. Maybe it's the way I look, and I, it still wasn't. It was a thought that was looming. It wasn't. It wasn't the driving force. I think when we did the teacher training and I did the eating disorders talk, I I talked about the first time I ever um, like binged, like totally, totally binged, was I was at a friend's house and I was playing and I was around eight or nine. And somebody made fun of my body. We were like outside on the scooters, you know, back when, you, back when you could just run around outside, and the parents were like, "Come back at this time," and this, that, and the other. And I think there was a little boy we were playing with, and he said something about my cheeks or being having chubby cheeks or something of the sort. And I remember just scootering back to my friend's house and just like, just like one-legged push, like fierce, fierce, back to the house. And I came in the house, I didn't think anybody was around, and I went to the fridge, and I just was like, f- like, it was like an animal, I just like opened the fridge, I was looking for something, I was looking for something to like fill or p- put the cork in the in the hole or fill the pain, like make it stop, um and i i opened the cabinets and i found this like tub like green tub of like export soda crackers and there was like a big thing of sunny delight <laughs> i don't know for for us old ass people this terrible orange uh drink from the 80s and i just remember sitting on the floor and just like shoving the crackers in my mouth and drinking like like the, the stuff was coming out of the sides of my mouth and i just felt like for the first time i felt so much relief i was like oh my god I feel, I, I'm like feeling my feelings and nobody's stopping it and this feels good. It feels like I'm, it felt like probably what I would have wanted. I would have wanted a hug. I would have wanted somebody to talk to, but the food was just like flooding my well, system. Like filling a
1: gap in a sense. Right.
2: right. It was, it was filling a gap. And I think um, it's, it's probably worth mentioning, you know, my mom struggled very much with um, with food uh, from <laughs> from the inception of, of our birth. She's always had you know, f- food issues in, in her 20s. And then that grew more, I think, with each pregnancy with life responsibilities. Food became a coping mechanism. Um, a, it's supposed to, you know, f- be a cultural thing that we share in this. And it became, I think, a, almost like a, a weird thing with my mom where it was like, we were pretty much doing the same. She was filling that same gap, that same void with food. So I was watching this, the whole time it's just now I'm able to connect it back as a child I I wasn't able to connect it I was just like what am I doing like why does this feel good and maybe I shouldn't do it but it's exactly what I was watching my mom you know do at home over and over again
1: and considering that you you and your sister are pretty close like on term of age were you talking to your sister about your feeling at this time about the you know the comment from the um, dance teacher or or about being girls like going through like also later puberty and everything pretty much together. Were you talking about that and, and trying to understand, to figure out what's going on with us or?
2: My sister is, I mean, she's my best friend. Um, we are insanely close. I think now in our 40s, late 30s and 40s is when we're starting to talk about it. I think we as children, um, I, I also tried to protect her as well because she, she would go to the same dance teacher. And it's funny because we've had conversations about it now. Um, She was in the dance class after me, and they would always have to call me because she would pee her pants in the dance class. And it became like like an inside joke of like, oh, your sister's going to like do a plie and she's going to pee all over the floor. But now as an adult, I'm thinking to myself, why was she always peeing her? Yeah, it's no coincidence. <laughs> yeah, like this was he doing? Like was he intimidating her? And I would have to like go in and like swoop her up every time and like help her go to the bathroom and change her clothes. And you know, I now it's so funny as children, you don't you're taught not to question a lot of the things that that go on, uh, but as adults, you're just kind of like, what the hell was happening? That my sister was peeing in her pants you know, at six, seven years old, every week going to dance class. Like what kind of, what kind of, what, what the shit is yeah. <laughs> yeah. oh, yeah,
3: yeah.
2: happening? So we we didn't have a very uh, big dialogue about feelings and emotions. We just, we went based on what we saw. And what we saw was two emotions are acceptable, neutral and rage. Or maybe somewhere on the way from neutral to, to rage. But the other side of the slope was like, no, there are no tears in this house. Tears don't solve anything. Tears don't fix anything. Um, we, don't, we don't go in that direction. So my sister never went in that direction, but I always was like, oh my God, I would love to cry if crying was an option here. And I, I did cry a lot and I got called very dramatic. I, you know, victim, this, that, and the other. And it was just a lot of trying to figure out where to put that other end of spectrum of, of emotion
1: yeah i think it's also after it's like kids we are usually mean to each other and all oh, this there's, there's always something to pick on and yeah once you are labeled whatever the label is uh, in your school it's usually st- st- sticking for whatever <laughs> how long you get out of the school i mean it can be like years before you can get rid of this label right uh, and and well, I mean that can be tough obviously if spend years being bullied or called after whatever it is and and you need to watch every movement and because about everything is just overwhelming and especially if you have your if you're such so emotional i guess i mean i can't even imagine but that must be yeah overwhelming that's the first word i've got yeah
2: yeah i think it was um i think it got more complex as we got into um to high school uh, obviously for everybody. I think around that time too, I think my, my dad had, um, lost his job at Eastern or was on strike rather, um, which that was a very difficult time for us as a family. Um, you know, very, very financially distressing for my parents. So if you think about kind of the ethos on, you know, immigrant parents, like, okay, you're gonna you're gonna take the one thing that I, I do want to provide that I know how to provide for my children and then you're gonna you know you're gonna take that away from me or that so the stress levels and just you know the screaming, the yelling, the physical violence I mean it just um I know these are not things that my parents are proud of. they're incredible and wonderful people, but this was done to them. I mean in in Hispanic culture, we make jokes out of it. There's memes on the internet. I mean, you can just you can. You can I'll give you a couple of pages to follow. Getting whipped by the belt is like ha ha ha. Let's make a meme out of this, or having a, a, a chancla, a sandal, fly and hit you in the head. Or yeah, that was that was normal is, a your generation is, ago. This yeah, I mean, this, I mean,
1: nor- this was normal. Well, I mean, I, I mean now there are talks, I know mean, at least in France about uh, what's the English word, slapping on a butt, Yeah, spanking. Know? Like I mean, back in your days, spanking was normal. Right, like literally normal, right? uh, And it's being questioned now, right? Uh, So yeah, I mean, like that's what it was.
2: Yeah, and I, you know, trying to figure out my my childhood and understand things and not not how how to not repeat things with my own child. Um, You know, spanking, physical violence with with children. It's a relief for the parent. It's not a relief for the child in any way shape or form in fact it's very damaging uh for the child and it's it's a release for the adult that that behavior that it's been proven psychologically in study after study that that hitting and punishing and and that sort of physical or corporal kind of way is not uh beneficial psychologically in any way shape or form to a child and it's it's not that my parents did this consciously well, yeah, because I mean, they she's... wanted to fuck me up it's because this is the only thing they knew yeah and
1: and you know now it's easy for us to look at it decades later because now we know better uh but i'm sure in 50 years uh parents are going to be looking at
2: jones is going to be doing a podcast about me no but but, you know like
1: okay (laughs) Okay, now pretty much now what's the way to shut up a kid when you have guests in your house a screen
2: a screen and then i'm sure you there's know? research so that's in gonna- 50 years oh we're going to be talking about that look at us yeah. bunch of idiots
1: putting a screen in front of the eyes of the kids to shut them up like it's you know in a way it's the same it's just we evolve and and we learn and yeah it's just what it is
0: um so were you and your sister both treated the same way or were you treated differently because you were older because i know at the beginning you kind of said that you had different experiences with childhood
2: yeah. i think we were treated in, in pretty much the same way we had a lot of the same um experiences sometimes i feel like she was slightly
3: wilder
2: <laughs> than <laughs> than i was i mean in high school we took it to the limit i mean i think we were so close in age i think at the time my father worked um worked graveyard shift at the airport so he was he would come home in the morning when the sun would come up right before we went into into high school so we started high school And we were part, my sister and I were partying hard. And my mom, you know, valley girl, California. Yes, she's from a Latin American culture, but she's like, you and your sister have fun. Like, get it out of your system. And then my dad's like, I'm going to work a regular schedule. (laughs) My sister and I were like, no, like, this is not going to happen. So it was us just trying to, like, reformulate our party. And I really, like, I look back at it now and I'm like, I think we were such party monsters because we were just so... I mean, we were just so stifled in, in a lot of ways. So for us going out, having fun, letting our freak flag fly, like getting in touch with our inner child, dancing, doing crazy shit is, is, is it's yeah, kind well, it's kind free- of freedom. It's freedom. <laughs> so we just we just. It was like, okay, one of us has a driver's license, like, let's go. Let's <laughs> let's tear shit up, but we did terrible things and it then it became when my dad started working a regular schedule, it became like us us against him. Um and then my mom kind of in the back like, "Oh shit, like I created this monster and I don't know how to, how to stop it because I started the train and then now um now I now I don't know how to stop it. So it was just us like constantly breaking rules, constantly pissing them off. Um, and then I remember all of high school being like this push-pull of like, you're going to drive us to the brink of insanity. Um, and just like these just uh, typical high school experience. Your parents uh, against you and just... <laughs> You know, you're trying to like push towards freedom and adulthood. You, you,
1: you want to test where's the limit. Where can I go? Oh, 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 that's I,
2: okay. It's just <laughs> um, we were terrible. I, I used to pack my pajamas in my car just in case if I was sneaking back into the house. I like, and if I would get busted, I would be in my pajamas, and then I'd just be like, "Oh, I went to the car to get okay. something," We're just leaving windows and doors open. But I mean, we we pushed it. We pushed it pretty hard, and we were both pretty, pretty wild. <laughs> I can it's so well hard to imagine you were doing that. <laughs> oh <my goodness. laughs> I was not. Um, I don't want to say I was an awful human being, but um, yeah, it was. Um, it was a. It was an interesting space and time. But we had pretty much the same upbringing. I mean, we weren't treated any differently. One thing that we, we my sister and I, as of recent. Um, have reflected on quite a bit is that um, my sister was diagnosed with dyslexia really early on in elementary school, and she had a really rough go of it. I believe it was her first or second grade teacher it was awful to her, just tormented her, um, just uh, you know, kind of made her the, the laughing stock of the class. Luckily, she was able to get counseling at a very young age, and I think this is where maybe the split happened between the two of us, that she was already getting counseling and was in therapy at a very young age. And now, as it's so crazy that we're in our 40s talking about this, but I talked to my sister a lot about the work that we do with trauma, about my own work with healing myself and like discoveries I make along the journey, the books I read, things that happen in therapy. We kind of have our own therapy session every week. And she said to me the other day, like, you know, thank God I was in therapy so early. I was like, oh, shh shit, like you were in therapy really early. She was in therapy by, I think by second grade. So I think she did have an outlet. I think she did have a very strong therapist that helped her build a sense of self, uh, helped you know her understand that other people's opinions really were just that other people's opinions so i think it 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 served as a guidepost for her where i didn't have a little bit of a sounding board or anything or anybody to fall back on but again we're making these realizations that yeah mm -hmm. yeah it's
1: always easy to reflect you know because later but yeah no for sure yeah that had a
2: later on impact yeah later on in life
3: yeah
1: so from this first time uh, when you were about eight years old that you went into the fridge and and filled the gap with the food and snidy mm-hmm. um how did it go from there was it something that I felt oh actually that feels good so
2: yeah i think i i started mostly binging uh but not purging i would just yeah, just i mean it wasn't weird to eat massive amounts of food in my house cuz everybody was eating massive amounts of food
1: again culture in my <laughs> house
2: i mean it wasn't like a strange thing i mean we were seeing my mom eat massive amounts of food. We ate massive amounts of food. I think when we started to see the differences when we went to like my cousin's house and we would be serving ourselves um, dinner and just like my aunt would be like, are you, "Are you is that like are you really serving yourself that much food?" And I think that's when I started to to not rationalize it like, "Holy shit, like this is how we're dealing with emotions." But holy shit, look at us, look at us little. Little piggies in my head. I was like, Oh my God, we can't, we can't control it. Like, oh, how terrible! Like her and I don't know how to. Then they have all this control and they know how to serve themselves a regular serving of food, and we don't know how to do that. And we couldn't rationalize that. Oh, this is how we were coping with emotions. We are just like, Oh, we like to eat and we just want to serve ourselves again. Which this could go. This can go both ways. We should eat until the point where we feel full, happy, and satiated. And it shouldn't be determined now. I know this. But at that point, it's just like when you say that to a child, like, are you really hungry? Like, why are you serving yourself this much? We don't have the ability to rationalize and have that whole conversation in our head. The only thing we we feel is shame. So this shame started to grow around uh, the amount of food I would eat uh, how much I weighed, which was like, that's <laughs> kind of like the first time I ever stepped on a scale. It was like, holy shit. Like why? No, how? And it just became, it was a scale at our house. And then just, it just became like this gradual thing. And then I would just see it reflected back in diet culture. Like that was like the eighties, Suzanne Summers and the thigh master. And there was a cookie diet and the cabbage soup diet. And this diet of weight watchers is like the advent of weight watchers. And my mom was on weight watchers. So I was just like, oh, okay, like this is this like push and pull. Like I love food. I feel satiated by it. I um, I knew I was trying to use it like as a a, a locust of control with my emotions, but then I was like, oh, but then I have to be by all societal standards. Like I gotta do this the other way and and be thin. So I think that I started binging a lot. I think I started purging probably maybe around eleven or twelve. And it wasn't a constant thing. It was just like, I think I only did it at times when I felt uh, just like physically very uncomfortable, full. Um, and then I started to notice that something came of that purge. Something very powerful came of it, which I could feel the fullness of feeling the full range of being full and also emotionally full. Now I recognize it and then go back to being empty like completely completely empty because empty is good empty is clean empty is neutral empty is the blank slate where everybody else lives not not the full crying heavy end of emotion not rage but somewhere right in the middle where society kind of empty is empty is kind of good it's a it's a starting place to start back over again
1: so you mean that after Beijing you felt in a sense, like I don't know like dirty or like this. You know, if that's the right word, but uh, something like that. And, and 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 purging was, yeah, like going back to something more normal or pure or clean or whatever the right word is. But decided.
2: Yeah, it was. Um, I think I equated binging with um, yes, that feeling of fullness. But then came the shame, and then the feeling out of control. And then back to so many of those words and thoughts that I heard over and over again about, you know, feeling, feeling full, feeling, you know, it just created this this cycle of like feeling anything too much. You've got to get rid of it and go back to, to like homeostasis, to the the baseline. And I think, you know, with any addictive behavior, the more I read about addiction, the more I study but. Be- addiction the more you you get into this feedback loop neurologically in your brain it lays tracks with just like Pavlov's dogs ringing the bell and the dogs come and they're they're salivating they're waiting for for the food same thing I think over time it started to create this feedback loop for me which is it became the only place where I could feel a full feel fullness and we're not just talking physically feeling full like emotionally feeling full it's like Also a place where nobody could tell me what to do or how much to eat or how to look or how to be, but then there's so much shame associated with trying to hide this behavior. I mean, you gotta go, throw your head in a toilet somewhere yeah. it's not oh, the it's, easiest thing to do
1: especially at this age as well when you start being a teen and, and right. there's so much judgment and comparison and everything going on right.
2: um, and your body's changing anyway like naturally with oh, right. everything I mean I, I could have had you know an immaculate diet and my body probably would have looked a, a, a certain way I would have gone through a, you know a change we all go through that you know just kind of teenage you know kind of metamorphosis into what you're gonna look like but I, I I think like high school was like the soft softer version of my eating disorder a lot of things that went on during high school that probably were like kind of touching the accelerator like I'm just oof, oof, uh, this is really gonna like kind of like when a, a race cars are at the starting line and they're like revving their engines it's kind of what i felt high school was like for me i felt like it was a a breaking point um or at least the end of high school was a breaking point point. and then um there's a really interesting turn of events right around age right when i started college and um my sister was just coming out of high school so i um i started feeling not so not so great started having a lot of really bad headaches right around the time that I started college. Um, And I went to see a neurologist um, just because it was kind of debilitating headaches. I was having a lot of night sweats, uh, which I knew was odd and weird, but I didn't think anything um, of it at the time I was working for a a health insurance company. So everybody there was kind of like, "Eh, you can go get this checked out, this, that, and the other. And I went to the neurologist. They sent me to have a CAT scan of, of my head. And for some reason, Divine Intervention, they did it of my head and neck. And when I went back to the neurologist, he was like, okay, let's have the visit. I didn't think to, I was 19, so I was like, okay, I'll drive myself, not a big thing. And nobody called me to say, like, take your parents with you or anything. <laughs> I'm at the neurologist and they're like, oh, well, we did the CAT scan of the head and neck and it looks like you have you you have a tumor. And I was just like, what? So in in typical, like, I'm not going to worry my parents, Latin fashion, like, they have enough shit on their plate. Let me kind of deal with this alone and go through the whole process of having, like, the biopsy and everything else. And it turns out it was um, cancerous. So at that time, it was a really weird time because my sister also found out she was pregnant with my nephew. And um, she was 17, about to turn 18. So just like the world kind of crumbled <laughs> in my family, um, so to speak. It was it was a really just transitional and really weird and rough time. You've got like this whole like, okay, life coming into the world, but then like some impending doom and gloom on the other side of it. So it was just, it was hard. It was hard on my parents. It was hard on my sister. It was hard on me. I felt guilty and bad, again, compounding on the feelings of guilt and bad from all my other shit that I was hiding, then throw the cancer monster on top. And yet I'm watching my little sister go through this. So I was just like, the level of guilt that I felt um was just I, I don't know. I'm like most people are like, well how do you like, how do you feel guilty about having cancer? I'm like, I felt really guilty about having cancer. I did. I felt really Bad. My parents didn't know how to handle it. None of us did. Yeah. Well, it's,
1: again, it's not something you expect at such a young age. Also, right? you know, most people like it's it's devastating. It's such a devastating news. Right? there's the why me? The, this all those questions like coming up. Like, what have I done wrong? Like, is it my fault? Or I don't know. Like, you go through a roller coaster of emotions uh, and and. No one is ready. I don't. I don't think anyone is ready to hear such a bad news. Mm-hmm. But at 18 years old, you don't expect it at all. I mean, talk about yeah. punching the face. That's a hell of a punch. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, not, not even any idea how.
2: So what treatment did you have for the cancer? I had um, chemotherapy and radiation, I think, right after my diagnosis or right like leading up to the diagnosis. It's, um, you know, I had lymphoma. So it's not just, you know, doing the needle biopsy. You have to go and have a PET scan, make sure that there's not metastasis to any other areas in the body. I had to have a bone marrow biopsy. I'm not easy on <laughs> my parents either my mom was there when that happened and it was like oh she down for the count <laughs> she she like passing out right now uh watching me have this done I mean I, I now as a parent I can look back and just I have so much love and empathy for what my parents went through I can't imagine watching your child yeah. go go through this and then having the other child you know like pregnant as a teenager, like, i just, like, my hat's off to them, um, but at the time, I was just like, like, why can't they deal with this better, but at the same time, I didn't know how to deal, nobody knew how to deal with it, we were all, like, in the shitter with how to deal with this, and I, I dealt with it the only way I knew how, head up, don't feel any emotions, don't talk about it, muscle through, power through, achieve, go, Um, and there wasn't a lot of room. I feel like that part of my life, I folded it into a little box and then I put the box high on the shelf thinking that the box was never going to come out or down from the shelf where I shoved it under the carpet. And there's like this little square box under the carpet. I'm like, nobody's going to see that square box underneath the carpet. Um, but then, you know, after that, it was my, my nephew was born and within a year or two of my nephew being born, he he was diagnosed as autistic, and that was just like, oh damn! Like, <laughs> here comes another whammy. And you know, when life happens, life just happens. It doesn't come linear. It doesn't come packed in this beautiful package with this silky ribbon and like this great, beautiful timeline. Like, it just throws shit at you left and right and up and down. And I think you know as parents and as people, my parents were just like not equipped, you know, I don't think any of us. No one is. No, no, no <laughs> of us are equipped <laughs> no for one, this I mean, shit. Like people talk about, you know, you know, be, being able to face adversity. Like you never know until it's dealt to you how you're going to deal with it. You, you just, you just don't well, know. Sp-
1: also, especially when it's one thing after the other. Uh, you know, like it, I mean, when one shitty thing happens, it's already like, troubling and and okay you can manage to go through you figure it out somehow uh but yeah usually you don't expect to have the other hook coming yeah. behind and then another one and then like i mean we're human and like we said at the beginning it's no manual <laughs> for life yeah. <laughs> so yeah it's
2: yeah I'm i remember my to- mom telling me that she was so pissed off at god like she would have these like dialogues with god like fuck you like how how like why doesn't this stop like why is it one thing after the other just like leave me alone like what have i done to to deserve this this shit and it's just like even as an adult i couldn't i was still in that mentality of the little kid wanting to protect their parents not wanting the shit to fall on their parents so you know what did i do you know like i set out to become a doctor when i was in college and like all this stuff and then i was like you know what? Fuck this. I can't spend another day in a hospital. I can't spend another day in a medical environment. I want to turn this shit around. And I got a job offer from a beverage company at a very, very young age. I had a very lucrative and amazing run within the beverage industry. But I took the whole like, you know what? I'm going to achieve. I'm going to take this shitty thing that happened to me. And I'm going to achieve this living shit out of out of life. I'm going to climb the corporate ladder and I'm going to do all the things that society tells us to do and like get the accolades and get the promotions and make the money and do the things. And while I was doing all those things, it was like, if remember when I was revving the eating disorder in high school, then the cancer diagnosis was just like, fuck this. This is the Indianapolis 500 and I'm going to go apeshit like my eating disorder probably from age 20 to age 30 it was my second full-time job it was day and night it was like an assignment from the second I woke up to the second I fell asleep um and it became like an obsessive compulsive kind of thing I think we talked about it during the training when I did the eating disorder talk it was how it was the, the lever of how I would adjust my emotions. Um, bad day, binge a lot, purge a lot, alcohol came into a play from a very, very, very young age. Um, the second I realized, oh shit, like I, maybe I don't have to binge or purge all the time. I could drink these feelings away or I can snort these feelings away or I can bring another drug into this. So then it was like, okay, whatever gets me um, whatever you know kind of gets me through the night and then working in the beverage industry you can only imagine <laughs> these are things that are um, they're not discouraged this is what was all around it's networking me. yeah yeah you know I, I won't I won't drop any names of any any of these places or whatever like you, you google it and find it uh, but I was I was in the devil's paradise yeah. when it came down to having access to whatever i wanted to in the in the realm of
1: yeah is, i mean it's, it's i don't know it's it's like if i want to make an analogy with the food it's like yeah if you have a eating disorder and you're hired to taste the food at mcdonald's like maybe right. I mean, it's the same it's just
2: just easy access yeah like there's so much you can do and plate, yeah. Yeah, yeah right yeah there there came a point where i, I um i really started changing drastically in in appearance. I started losing a ton of weight. When I went through chemo and radiation the first time, um, I was on a lot of steroids. My face kind of started to to blow up. You go through a lot of um, physical changes when you're undergoing chemotherapy, and some aren't necessarily related to how much you're eating. Sometimes you're eating barely anything, and just because of the, the treatment that you're having, or the steroids that you're taking, um, your 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 body will physiologically start to morph and change and just look different ways. It's not necessarily eating a lot of food. Sometimes you know you're not eating anything, and um, then I then that's I think internally where I was like, oh, like I got pissed. I'm like, but I'm not eating anything. I'm like, I'm not even purging because I'm just sick all the time from chemo and I'm purging that way like why am I yeah what's, wh- going on? what's going on why am I looking this way and then I I spent you know the years after my my first you know round of treatment trying to just physically uh alter myself but at the same time just tune the needle or, or, or tune the lever with my emotions through food and drugs um and alcohol and I think working in an environment that I I loved because I loved the creativity of what I did. I worked within the beverage industry within experiential events. So I, get, I got to create all sorts of <laughs> uh, you know uh, dream events and dream scenarios. And I think that's what I loved about my job. I didn't love the pressure. I didn't love traveling 200 days out of the year. I didn't love being a road warrior. Um, That was actually very stressful to me. And only now with age and a lot of introspection did I realize I didn't like traveling as much as I did. I just thought I did because that's what you did. You just, you had to do this as part of the job. But then uh, the stress of traveling was something that didn't work for me. Being in an office is something that has not ever worked for me. And there were many points in my career where I tried to do that. And that was just like, want to turn the dial on the eating disorder, the food and the drugs, like, go ahead and turn, turn it up. Because, you know, I think we force ourselves into a lot of scenarios where our body and our mind and our gut are telling us no, 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 no. And it's like a screaming, blaring red light, but we do it anyways, because we quote unquote have to do it because society tells us, like, okay, just you know what, eat crow. You'll, you're going to make another twenty thousand. You're going to make another forty thousand. Just do whatever you need to do, and it's it stops becoming about interpersonal happiness. It's a rat race, and it's it's the rat race, which you guys. <laughs> I mean, we could, we could do another whole podcast about <laughs> about how, how to not run run the rat race. But I think right around the time, right after my diagnosis, I started yoga. Um. And that was probably one of the first times again where I was like, "There's that like that like flow state. There's that like whisper of like really being connected to my body." And I think it was like the first time in an entire day when I did do yoga that I didn't think about binging. I didn't think about purging. I didn't think about. I just, I just was able to kind of, sort of, the best way I knew how connected my body and it was always in the background and I loved I loved it so much I loved I, I just there was something about yoga that was so magical but I never thought it could be a focus of any sort so yoga was always dancing kind of like dancing in the back like okay I see you I hear you I want to stick with you because like I'm going to show you some shit in a couple years I want to show you like where you really want to go and what you really need to do but yeah yoga was was always in the background, um, and then I became more passionate about it. And I think probably right around age um, thirty, I had had another one or two relapses with the cancer monster. And I just, I, I, there's nothing fun to tell. I dealt with them in the same way I dealt with it the first time. Just tried to muscle through. Just tried to not make it affect other people. Just drive myself to chemo or drive myself to radiation or just not tell people about it just because I felt all this inten- intense, like I don't want to burden people with things, which is the storyline of a lot of my life, like just take on more shit, you know, help people just do things quietly. And we, we know that that's a, a trauma response, just continuing to go about life without boundaries, um, without saying no, and without telling other people like, no, actually my plate is really full, or like, I can't, <laughs> I can't do this. Maybe I shouldn't take this on. Maybe that's your responsibility. But I just felt uh, the people pleasing, yesing, and this, that, and the other. So I just dealt with it in the way I could. I think right leading up to about thirty, I was just like, this is physically, it's this is unattainable. Like this is a full time job for me managing drugs, alcohol. an eating disorder like how how do how do you how does one get to the rest of life and i had some physical um stuff happen i think i had my first um my first seizure uh right around age 29 and we don't know if that was um related to alcohol or related to the fact that my electrolytes were so low something i've i've like barely talked about with anybody but that was the first time you know, where I was like, oh, oh, oh shit, like this cannot continue. I remember I was in New York. um, I moved to New York for a while and I was on the floor of my apartment and I was just like, literally like flapping around like a fish. I'm like, holy shit. Like I'm like, I am in a, I am in a state. I am in a bad way. And I just started experiencing a lot of dizziness, a lot of fogginess, a lot of like blacking out. Uh, My episodes, blacking out while drinking were a lot more intense because I wasn't eating. So, you know, I, I was also, you know, doing a lot of counseling at the time, but just probably not even being really honest with my own therapist. Um, I was using a lot of benzos too, the Clodopin, the whole nine things. So it was just like taking know, yeah, just, like you ever yeah. see like one of those in, 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 like YouTube videos of how to put together the perfect college punch. And it's like, We're going to put Hawaiian Punch and Bacardi 151 and this. And that was kind of like my life at the time. It's like, let me just open the liquor cabinet or like put anything, Fruit Loops, like anything that I could just throw into the pot, How I I would throw it.
1: Did anyone had any idea that was going on in your life? Like, or like how how was your i don't know normal <laughs> life you know like outside of that I could were you pretending everything was fine or? i i think I I, you know,
2: know to to much of an extent i pre- pretended like everything was was fine i'm sure there're people that caught on along the way but i think it really took um I think also, too, the fact that I, I had been sick with cancer, too, and that I had had some baubles with that and relapses in the middle, I think it, it served as a very good deflection. And people were like, oh, you know, she's just losing weight because she's been through treatment and this, that, and the other. And it was just... Um, I think any secret that we carry with us for a very long time, anything that we hold inside of us that we don't talk to other people about... Um, it will destroy you there's only so much a human being can hold before the human being can't hold um, anymore
1: yeah but also I, I we we talked to someone uh, a few months ago Tim on, on a podcast who had a drug addiction and the reason I was asking is I, I remember him saying that he felt in control but eventually People started to notice, you know, at work that he wasn't himself, or in his relationship with his partner, and 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 he wasn't as good at his job anymore. So eventually, that had impact on like, his professional life. And then, you, when you start to lose it, you know, like yeah. b- b- you you think you're in control, you think you got it, but eventually you don't, because like okay. you said, like there's a limit on how much we can right. deal with as human. So I was wondering if that ever happened, like this, this stage. Yeah. of
2: feeling- <laughs> I um. I was, a at the time where I think I realized I needed to get some help, I was a brand manager for a very prominent beverage <laughs> that many of us drink. Um, and by all outside accounts, was living the life. Like I, you know, was wow. successful, lived in a great place, made good money. Internally, I knew that my finances were hanging on by a thread. My interpersonal relationships were... Also hanging on uh, by a thread, I had become more sloppy with, you know, <laughs> having an eating disorder like bulimia, which at times it's been anorexia as well. We can get into that. But I think there's there's also like a gray place for certain eating disorders that don't kind of qualify all the way in one way and all the way in the other. I was really underweight Um As well, I don't talk numbers or do numbers because that's, that's, no, Um, (laughs) that's not good. That's not good policy and behavior. But I think I didn't fall into a lot of categories. So I think a lot of therapists at the time didn't know how to treat um, it completely. And I think this is just, you know, right at the turn where we started in the psychological world, really started talking about PTSD and things were becoming a little bit more substantial, um with that as well so i i also don't think i was being completely honest with my therapist either i think you get used to hiding and you get so fucking good at it I, it became like a blood sport for well, me it
1: becomes a reality you know? uh, like, it, 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 it totally is did which me- i sh- you believe it in the sense i guess you
2: start you you fake until you make it you start to really believe it i really thought my my life was in control until like i reached just this insane um breaking point i think i i told you guys during the training i, I was in my office and i i like it's like okay let me go to whole foods i'm gonna get my lunch eat my lunch and like i had my binges and my purges down to like a science i'm like i'm gonna go to this bathroom at this time i gonna go to the stall because i know nobody's there like this is how my mind worked like it was like, cl- it was science. It, it was like clockwork. I could tell you what I was going to, you know, what stall I was going go to go do, what I was going to do. Da, 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 da. Same thing with dinners. I couldn't go out with friends. Everything had to be planned. I had to like know what bathroom I was going to escape to or if, if I wasn't going to eat, if I wasn't going to eat. Um, you know, when I wasn't eating, then it would, you know, result in like if I would go out with friends or even in the business world, would if I didn't eat because I didn't want to go through that whole like, oh my god, I'm gonna have to find a toilet, this that, and the other. Then it was the night of drinking with my business colleagues and doing that on an empty stomach. And you can see where I probably eat things starting to get really messy and really ugly, um, really quick. <laughs> Many, many a job was, was threatened at this point. And I think, um, going back to that day where I was just like, okay, that's it. Um, I had gone to my preferred stall to the bathroom. I went to throw up and I, when I went to throw up, I threw up just like a pool of blood. Just, it was just like, I had never seen anything, um, like this before. And, um, I ended up having to go to a doctor and have like some emergency procedure for my esophagus. But I literally was like, I can't. I cannot. I spent the rest of um, that week on the phone with my insurance company, only to find out that these things or eating disorders are just like not really kind of covered. Sorry, we don't do. And I'm just like, <laughs> thinking to myself, like, oh, I'm sorry. This is kind of life or death for me. Would you like to cover this because this is um, not something that I just created in a vacuum. This has been like, you know, and and at the time it was really. I had three. I was like. I was like Beyonce. It was a triple threat. I had three things <laughs> I had three things going on at the time. It wasn't just food. It was alcohol and it was drugs. Um, so I didn't qualify under a lot of like, I, I technically wasn't an alcoholic. I technically wasn't a drug addict. It was just like this weird jumble with the insurance company. And um, I wrote to a family member um, who had always been very kind and loving and wonderful to me and to my my parents when i was going through cancer treatment and um i remember my dad would always tell me like he, he adores you i'm like but he hasn't seen me since i was like a kid like how can he adore me so much he's like he's always asking about you this time and the other and i literally wrote like you know dear you know da, 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 da. and i just was like i'm a raging bulimic I, blah, 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 blah. I just was like i remember i was just like writing 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 not the first writing. time you're unloading it I had never said anything to anybody else and I was just like okay I'm going to write this letter and I literally wrote a like handwritten letter marched it to the post office put a stamp on it and I was like I'm not I'm not going to hear from him like this shit is just like I'm writing this letter whatever I I also opened up to my parents for the first time and told them about everything and um it was just not good I mean first of all, what is what is an eating disorder to two people that have never really heard about eating disorders? This is like you only when you'd see it like on the hallmark channel and like very sensationalized like Karen with anorexia and, da, 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 and you know, I just trying to explain to my parents like what I was doing, the fact that I was like throwing everything up. and it was just like like literally like if I had, Hit them with a bus. They're just like, no, absolutely not. Like this is this is you're doing. This is your choice. This is this is a very easy. This is a choice you're making a choice every day, and you're making a choice to to hurt yourself and damage yourself. And you know we don't have the money to send you to treatment. We don't have the money to get you help. Like we wash our hands of this shit. And then it of course the layer of, I don't think they did this on purpose, but. After all we've been through with you, this is how you, yeah. you know, kind okay. of. But
1: again, it's, it's, there is a real education problem on those topics. Uh, like before the training, uh, I mean, just a couple of weekends ago, we were talking about um, addictions with one of the guests, and and one of the first things she said was, "It's not." Um, what's a the word? Mindset. Yeah, it's not a mindset. It's not a, a like a conscious choice like i'm, I'm gonna whatever to addiction it. It is yeah yeah exactly yeah it's it has to be treated as a disease and as a, a disorder and it's not just a, a lack of um, okay. willingness and stuff to just do it but now i've learned that um but i'm pretty sure 90 plus percent of the population think is that because there is a lack of education on the topic I think yeah globally so
2: I think I heard um, a TED talk once uh, from a Native American gentleman that had struggled with addiction that he compared it to imagine eating a box of Xlax, lax you know the laxative and somebody telling you you can't shit that that's what having an addiction feels like like imagine somebody having that feeling that compulsion inside like when you need to go to the bathroom and somebody telling you but no don't go to the bathroom
0: yeah it's exactly
2: what it what it felt like i still to this day walk into places and spaces or have triggers and memories that i'm like it would be so easy just to um just to slide down the slope again and i am faced with that um that every day but it's not listen it 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 wasn't my family that called me out and said like hey you need to go to treatment I called myself out because I was just like I was I was suicidal I just I thought not being on this earth anymore would be much easier than subjecting everybody around me to the pain that I was in that's exactly how I felt like an easier fix would be for me not to be here because I don't know how to treat this. Nobody around me knows how to fix this or treat this. And I just wrote that letter as like the final cry. Like the final, like, just, you know, like, okay, God, like this, if there's a chance for me to make it on this earth, like, let me put this little letter in the mailbox and and pray that somebody answers the letter. And um, they did.
1: It's, it's amazing you had this I don't know, moment of awareness to first have the realization that you had a problem because sadly, most of the time is coming from other people but i came from you and that you had the well the courage to write this letter because i mean it's not easy to admit it and to to put it on paper made it real uh, and 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 i mean you know i don't know, you, I mean, you know better than i do but this this thing like one of the first step of the 12 step program whatever it's about admitting that you have a problem right something like that and yes it's never easy for anyone to admit that you have a problem without talking about addiction uh, so the fact that you had this well you didn't you know you 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 said that you had like thoughts about maybe ending and everything but you 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 didn't take this path and you that might have been easier in a sense uh, but you You still went the other way to okay. Let's try to find a solution. I mean, I I feel a lot of the time it's coming from other people uh, when you have this twenty new, yeah,
2: yeah. And we we talked about this during the the training too. There used to be that show intervention, like in the early two thousands, and it was like glamorized, like this this A and E channel would like glamorize these interventions being done, like these families coming in and going to these people that either had drug addictions, alcoholism or eating disorders and being like, if you don't go to get help, like you, we're just axing you out of our lives forever. Um, and the more study I've done about addiction, the more research I've done about trauma and PTSD. And um, there's a beautiful book by Johan Hari, which I think is like my my holy grail, the, the book that I live by called Lost Connections. Um, and in this book, he talks about how the opposite of addiction is connection. How the more we just release whatever our story is out into the universe, the more we start um, to talk about things and have that dialogue. The less we're tethered and anchored to the pain of of what's at the root, um, the root cause of our our addictions. Like I didn't know, I didn't know that writing that letter would. That my my cousin would answer me and like swoop in with his wife and be just like pick pick a place, <laughs> just just pick a place, pick where you want to go, and we'll start from there. And that that was the beginning of um, me getting treatment and also me realizing that um, treatment is not accessible to. <laughs> I went to a very nice place and I thank them for saving my life, Um, but I remember many a day sitting on like beautiful white tufted couches with coral pillows and like pastel this, that and the other. And like, all right, like, like do you want quinoa for lunch or tempeh? And I'm just thinking to myself like, what the shit? Like this is not what treatment looks like for most people. Like, this is just, this is like a fantasy. Most people have to white knuckle it through whatever treatment um, that they're getting. So I think I I, I started to kind of get an air of a little bit of like, okay, I might be dipping my toe later on in, in social justice and talking about things that, but I just started noticing, just like I noticed like when I was little, that there were no female apostles. I'm like literally sitting there in treatment going, what the shit? Like this. <laughs> just some this is like some fantasy world around me but I'm I'm forever thankful for that treatment program because yoga and movement were at the focal point and somatic experience were at the focal point of um, that treatment program and a lot of um the mindset of health at every size that that doesn't have to the concept of health at every size can can say that um, bmi body body mass index that, that's kind of a very outdated and antiquated concept that was come up with over a hundred years ago about how to measure our health by our our quote-unquote body mass index and you know you can weigh 200 pounds and be healthy as shit and you can weigh 99 pounds and be unhealthy as shit so this this treatment center that I did go to really did use that model um as as a person attending the treatment center it was scary as shit (laughs) um for like that concept to be introduced but it was um I think my first time in treatment I was there almost a year pretty close to a year which is a really long ass time um
0: how do they go about that? Do you just go there and all of a sudden it's cold turkey, you are watch twenty four seven and you can't do drugs or alcohol or binge eating or like yeah, or do they right. kind of wean you off it gently? Um, like how <laughs> does how does that work? So
2: it
1: was to treat all the addictions as well? Yeah, like or, I, I went, or you went as a
2: with one label. Right. I went, I went under the guise of... Um, I went into an eating disorder treatment center, but rarely does anybody enter an eating disorder treatment center with just an eating disorder. Um, I, I think we've, we went over some of the statistics when we did um, the module for eating disorders. I think you know, co-occurring conditions are, are high comorbidity rate. We're talking like 50, 60% of people with an eating disorder have something else going on in the world of, of drugs and alcohol, and it only gets thicker and heavier uh, the more we lay our intersections of, are you a brown person? Are you an indigenous person? Do you come from this place in the world? Do you come from poverty? When we start to layer all the things that happen life on life on top of that, then our our chances for having other co-occurring addictions are much, 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 much higher. But it, it wasn't a quick process when when you reach a certain point with certain eating disorders that you go into a treatment center, especially if you need medical stabilization like like I did. I had had that issue with my esophagus having to be repaired. I had also had a mild cardiac event. Um <laughs> Leading up to that too. So my heart was not in good shape. So I went through a process of medical stabilization um, once I came in the first week and then a process of refeeding. So you you take a body that, like mine, that had not uh, digested food in 10 years. (laughs) I'm sure some food went through my digestive tract. I mean, it's, I, I, I it's crazy to think about how you said it. Yeah. I binged never, in person. I didn't, I didn't think about Yeah, everything all. I ate for 10 years. I think one of the first therapeutic exercises that I was actually awake for in treatment um, that they gave me, they give you TOs, therapeutic opportunities every week, and you've got to write in journal about them. But one of the first one was like, what is your food philosophy? And I was just like, so what do you mean with my food philosophy? Like, how do you deal with food from the second you wake up until the second you go to sleep? And I was just like, get it out of my body like the second it gets in my body it needs to get out of my body like i don't want to feel i don't want to feel what that's like like i became so out of touch with um just knowing what it's like to have a regular i just didn't know what it was like to have a regular meal and sit with Mm. your food
1: no but also what what you said is interesting because there is the, the the mindset but the physical part like your body don't know how to digest I, I, I've never thought about that that's so interesting like your, your body doesn't know how to process it anymore I guess um, and it's gonna learn again in, I, I,
2: in treatment I didn't know that. Is, there's a lot of really funny things that go on in, in treatment one day I'll write a book about this which is, is very much written it just needs to get fine-tuned I, We we often celebrate the first time somebody actually poops in treatment, because <laughs> because you, it, it was it became like a celebratory thing. We your treatment with a very at least I was with a very small group of women, um, and you kind of know everybody's ins and outs, why they're there, what they're you know what's going on with them and whatnot. And yeah, when you you get to a treatment facility, everything is sort of um your your belongings are looked through. Anything sharp is taken away from you, and that's the last time you're ever gonna flush your own pee and poo, as long as you're there. So that also became like a... What, um... oh, they check to see that you've... Yes. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Yeah. All your bowel movements are flushed by a recovery um, coach. If you're going to take a shower, because I lived in a residential treatment facility, um, we would have our meals at the cer- a certain time. We'd all be together for at least X amount of time after that meal. So the food would digest... <laughs> But I was sneaky as fuck. <laughs> my, my first go-around in treatment, I was, like, doing push-ups in the shower, squats in the shower. I found a way to throw up inside my water bottle, inside of a closet. Like, this is what I'm telling you. This, These are these are real tracks that you lay in your brain. It is not like... It's 20 years. Yeah.
1: It was 20 years yeah. of practice oh, pra- going yes. this way. So. I became...
2: I mean- I became thoroughly you become good at it. You become very good at it and it's like it's it's your identity. It's like um Linus from the Peanuts with his security blanket. Like you can't take that away from me. Like that's the only thing I know. This is my this is how I ma- manage every single emotion that I have and this is how I manage life. And then yeah, I voluntarily put myself in treatment, but then when it became a reality, I was like, "Oh, no. I mean, nope." nope, I don't want this taken away from me. So I struggled. I mean, put it this way, the treatment center had to like revamp all their rules about like outings and where they could take us and shower times and when you could go in the closet and when you could have your water bottle. I was just as terrible as I was in high school. I was at at, at treatment. Um, It was I was so bad. It was so bad the first time around. But it became... um, it was really the first time I started to look at things, like, the first time the concept of maybe the reason that I was doing this was related to things that I had experienced in childhood. It's the first time somebody ever talked to me about codependency. Uh, I, I was diagnosed with PTSD, Um and I, I just, I, I remember, like, kind of scoffing at somebody, like, telling me I. That, It's like, no, I'm not a war veteran. Like, I can't, there's no way I can have PTSD. I didn't, like, go to Vietnam. And, like, I knew so little about, you know, PTSD and complex uh, trauma that I just had to become educated. And in general, our society doesn't know a lot about trauma, complex trauma, childhood experiences. It's the first time I took an ACES test, which we talked about during um, our training, too, which is – adverse childhood experiences test. And most people in this country score about a one um, on an ACEs test. And I, I think I scored a four or a five. And so the ACEs test you know, basically says the more adverse childhood experience that you've had, the higher susceptibility that you have to cancer, immune system conditions, addiction, and a lot of other, you know, things that go on later on in life. It's not a 100% predictor that those things will happen, but it increases your risk a lot. A, lot. <laughs> a hell of a lot. So this is the first time I started to like put it all together and maybe start to not feel guilty about it.
0: And so what age were you when you went to, to this 30. one? Yeah. 30. Okay. And then you said this was the first time. <laughs> yes. How many times were it took? It took
2: two more times. Okay, and at what ages
0: were you with these ones?
2: Was Uh, it kind of? They were very, very sequential, (laughs) and and um, I don't, I don't want to say there were failures, because there was exponential growth with each one. There were outpatient programs between each one. There were traumatic events uh, between each one, which upped the ante. I mean, you got to think of treatment as. You're in this microcosm, this beautiful microcosm where you know what time you're gonna wake up every day, you know when you're gonna eat, you know what outside pressures and stressors are there, you're not going to a job, you're not dealing with, you're in this little vacuum and it's in this beautiful safe container for a reason so you can unpack and process your traumas, your maladies, the things that make you do the things that you do and then you're kind of released into the outside <laughs> into the wild <laughs> into the wild <laughs> into the wild and it was like holy shit, i live like i live right under a bar like how am i gonna manage this like there's like all this shit in my house that i didn't even plan that i was gonna come back to my house and i was just
3: like all this here
2: and it's like do i go back to a job do i not go back to a job um, and you know, that's another reality in this country that we have to look at. We send people into treatment and think that it's, you know, uh, I'll have a number four recovered. No, it doesn't work. like
1: that. Yeah. It's on a magic pill. that you go. You get up. Uh, I'm cured. <laughs>
2: no, no. And I was, I was, I will say I'm very lucky that during the, the especially the first treatment process that, um, you know, un- understanding. Uh, family dynamics and all of this is is really important and I will say that my father just stepped up to, to the plate and that was the one that I didn't think would want to go to treatment. I remember the first time we had like a family session with my mom and dad and my my therapist was like, do you think that? Your childhood, or like the way that you raised her, you know, had anything to do? And I could just tell, I see my mom's face just like the red started like from her nose and it started panning out to the side. And I just see her like grabbing onto the side of the couch. I was like, oh shit, she's gonna like blow her top. And by the end of like the therapist statement, my mom had one of the throw pills and she just went, Wow! Threw it at the therapist. It's like I'm fucking out of here. Like fuck you. I'm I'm out. And I was like, holy shit, this is pressing a major button. And she wasn't. She wasn't ready to deal with it at the time. Um, but my dad, <laughs> which that's, you know, like I adore my father. There was a lot of pain um, in my childhood surrounding my dad um and you know physical violence and outbursts and just him just not being able to manage his emotions and taking it out on us and again i don't think any of it was intentional i think they're wonderful people they're wonderful parents but they hurt people hurt people like we we said but let me tell you the man sat there through some stories i mean i just i let it all out and um He's heard some things that many parents probably shouldn't and don't want to hear. Um, and it's, it's, it's been a process. It took the three times of going to treatment, but I will, I'll tell you, like, I don't think that that is the magic and silver bullet. I think that those things stabilized me. I think that they helped at the time. Um, but I think the work has come after. I think the work is unending and I just it's constant reading it's constant learning and I think yoga and becoming a yoga teacher and going down that path has has been just such a beautiful like overlayer to this because you know as yoga teachers we learn that it never stops the knowledge the gathering information the learning from others it never stops and this is what I feel has really just help me deal with all of the uh, the above and i still have my my baubles i still have my moments i still (laughs) question a lot of the the things um that i that i do i have dialogue with myself every day um
1: we all do it's not just you don't worry
2: (laughs) (laughs) but um but yeah it's been a it's been a process and in that that process of healing i've also learned of the pain of others that haven't had the access that I've had to, to treatment. And it wasn't, yeah, the first time I had a relative pay for treatment, but I cashed in two 401ks in order to be able to go to, go to treatment again. So everything that life and society has told me, this is what I'm supposed to do. Like, you're supposed to have this 401k, retire, live the life, and do all these things. Da, da, da. Well, you know what? I took my retirement to save my life. So there you go. I don't have a nest egg like the rest of the world does. But, you know, there's always this part of me that's always believed, like, fuck that narrative. Like, I'm... Well, yeah, I mean, and, well,
1: I mean, also, it's, I mean, yeah, it's safe for later, but you need to right. make it to this point. So, I mean, yeah, this... Yeah, there's
0: no point in having
2: a bank full of money if you're not... No, I had to enjoy it anyway. Yeah. Like, no, no, so, you know. no. I think the second time I went into treatment, I was—I mean, I—I I was that. I think I was actually in a much worse place um, than than the first and time. Did
1: you relapse in the three addictions or just one? Uh, one?
2: Um, I think I I stopped using the first time I went to um, the first time I went to treatment. I just like just it was very easy for me to stop doing drugs I just stopped doing cocaine it was just very like I had no access to it so it was like okay (laughs) like I guess that wasn't I guess it wasn't that strong um but I think I always just kept um alcohol is very we've had long conversations about this is socially acceptable nobody's gonna call your shit on it everybody drinks I was in the beverage industry it was just like
1: I mean more than socially acceptable is if you want to fit in, you need to drink. It's encouraged. Yeah, yeah it's cool. like if, you, if you go to a place and you don't take a drink, it's like, why what's wrong with what's you? What's the reason? Yeah, like, what's are like... you
2: recovering? La, 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 la. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, there's there's like a actually very big, you know, movement around being sober curious and going through periods of, of sobriety and stuff. But I think, um, I think, I think if anything, that second time around, alcohol played like a really big, because um, I found it was a much quicker Fixed. Like, I didn't have to go through the troubles of binging and purging. And I was just like, okay, I'll just make myself you. some drinks. And then it's. But then I felt that it took um, my depression and anxiety to a place where it had never been before. And one thing we know about alcohol and depression and anxiety is um, drink a lot. It's like taking a gallon of gasoline and just pouring it on top of your. Anxiety on top of your depression, um, and you know, I was using a lot of just pills and just benzos and stuff like that. And I just got to a point where, again, the shame in centered around having to go back to treatment. What are people going to think? What an epic failure! After my cousin paid for treatment the first time, what a shit show. Shame on my family and. What are people going to think? And I actually had friends that just stopped talking to me, period. Were just like, just couldn't understand the nature of what was happening, had been with me through, you know, bouts with cancer. So it was just like, it was just like a slap in the face to them. Like they thought I, it was just a choice I was making to consciously just kill myself. Um, and it's like, no, I wasn't making a choice. It's like the only, this is this was my survival tool. It has been my survival tool since I was a small child. Thing,
1: it started so early as well. Like yeah. all your teen and adult years, you, you were living this way. That was your n- normality. That was your, this is life. Right. It's not even, it's not like you started at 40 years old, but you had 20 years old of whatever sense of normality. It's, it's literally been like, It's so young, ten years old. I mean, it's literally when you, you don't even know what's life at ten years old. Come on. Yeah.
2: (laughs) So all I have, all I've known is is shame, and hiding, and secrecy, and just you know the 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 reality of going into treatment again was just like holy shit. I want to. I'm going to put more shame, more guilt, more everything. So I I had like a real real suicide attempt before the second time in treatment. Um, and it was some real shit. I mean, it was just like a failed attempt. Like, thank God. Um, <laughs> thank God I was living in a, just, this amazing like, townhouse. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to just like lock myself in the garage and just put my foot on the gas and just like, sh- sh-. I think I Googled it drunk. <laughs> I was like, this sounds like a great plan. And I didn't have enough gas in my car and i ran out of gas. And i remember just waking up, i had taken some pills, i drank a shit ton. And i remember i had a french bulldog at the time and i guess he had pushed the garage door open um cuz he heard the car and he probably, you know how we know how doggies are, they sense everything. And i just remember just waking up and being like okay, and call it like literally like calling the treatment center the next day and be like i'm coming, i'm coming back. This didn't. This is this. Yeah, I need I need more time, and I think the second time around, I was in more of a, I went into more of a structured outpatient, you know, kind of like. You cannot be released into the wild. Normally, you cannot go back to work. You cannot live, the exact stressful life that you had. Do you get assigned a
1: sign, uh, mentor, uh, someone when you yes. go out again? Yes, yeah. yes. But not the first time.
2: Uh, well, I you uh, the. You're assigned. I had a therapist before I went into treatment. They kind of piggyback with my primary care physician that I should go into treatment. There's a lot of paperwork and stuff that needs to go into that. Once you go into a residential treatment facility, you're usually uh, paired with a primary uh, therapist that works with you. Uh, you're paired with a psychiatrist um, for medication management, any kind of management of any other underlying what we call mood disorders or mental health disorders. You know, I like to call them mental injuries. Um, And then you work with an integrative team as far as a nutritionist. Usually, you know, where I went to was very fancy. I had an art therapist and, you know, all sorts of fun things. But it's usually an integrative team that works together at a treatment facility, depending on which which one you go to or if if you even get to go.
3: Yeah.
1: Mm. But once you go back into the, the world, uh, do you have someone assigned you know like, I don't know, when when you watch movie and you see people going to AA they have like someone that they can call you know like right. anytime or, or whatever do you have right. this like a, I, a companion so, or yeah so were.
2: I went to a lot of mandatory AA <laughs> with the treatment um and you both know this I just from the get-go AA was um not I just I couldn't I would have to sit through these meetings and we're talking about months of sitting through these meetings at least two or three times a week and just from the the first uh, you know you, you see it on TV you hear about it and like the first time somebody stood up in front of me and said, you know, my name is so and so and I'm an alcoholic, I just I just I, it's like I felt my skin peeling up and off my body and I thought to myself Here's this person that probably is so wounded, so hurt, has been through a life cycle of just such utter and complete shame and has to stand in front of a room full of strangers and repeat something that they truly are not at heart. They're not an alcoholic. They're a person that has been injured by probably very traumatic life events and alcoholism or the abuse of alcohol is a fragment of who they are as a person, but mm-hmm. to get up and to ident- identify as I am this, like if there's no other aspects of me that are good or salvageable or savable. And I think that's where I've struggled a lot with a lot of the concepts of of AA, Um that that we're not worthy until we do, which is the fact is is quite the opposite, that we're very, very worthy. We just had all these things happen to us and these maladaptive coping patterns. And um, you know, I just could never latch on um to AA. So I had a therapist when I, I every single time I left, um, but didn't have I think this is where AA does give people a gift. If you're able to take what you need, as they say in the program, and just leave the rest behind, what AA gives you is community.
1: Yeah, awesome. Yeah,
2: yeah. And Just having someone to call when, just, when you feel like just, shit. Because you don't want to call your parents, somebody. you don't want to call
1: your sister, you don't want to call right. some people right. because of the sh- everything right. you've been it's talking about. Size. So just having someone yeah. to to do whatever it is. Yeah, know. and
2: I, may, I've, I forged very, very good and strong friendships with a lot of the people that I went um, you know, to treatment with, and that was just when you go to treatment and you find somebody else, especially in the realm of eating disorders, which is a topic we don't we don't talk about. We don't talk about that. Um, we're not like out to lunch with a friend and be like, ah, you know, like hey, I am a bulimic or hey, I am an anorexic. Like let's like, you yeah. know, oh me too, me too. You know, like let's you know. So to find other people is just like
1: I'm not alone. I'm not such a weirdo.
2: I'm at my Mecca. I remember being like my mom dropping me off at a Barnes and Nobles at the mall and me finding a book about eating disorders and literally sitting on the floor and just like, just reading through the book and just being like, wow, there's like other people out there like me. But then like having to keep that a secret again and then hoping like one day in the world, like I'd be free enough or feel good enough to like go and explore this again. So I was always like secretly Googling, secretly Googling treatment centers and and what to do next. And if there's any cure or, you know, and just a lot of the information out there at the time was very not good and very disparaging and very uh, outlook not so good. You know, eating disorders have the highest mortality rate of any mental illness. And it's just not something we talk about period and then you add on layers of addiction and other complexities and the numbers start to not become you know very good in general so it's um it's a very complex i'm sure as you guys learned
1: well i mean we only scratched the surface i
2: mean i think the cool part is like in in scratching the surface I think then you realize how many other things play in to it.
1: Yeah, and, and I mean before we didn't know that we didn't know. Now we know that we don't know much about it. So it's up to us now to dig into it and, and make some research and learn about it. At least we know that this is out there. Uh, yeah. which is the, the whole point. So when did yoga became a bigger part of your life in, in Tuda? And and also I mean it's interesting because I know you work with people with cancer now and so that that's coming into uh, a loop. Uh, so how I don't know. When did your life turn around? For lack of a better word, how? Yeah.
2: I don't. I, I don't know if it's. Yeah, <laughs> if it's I, don't, I don't know if, it's, I don't know them, if it's like still, if it's turned around or not, or yeah. or um, things just lessened. But I think um, when I came out of treatment, like I, I was practicing yoga a lot in in treatment, probably two, three times a week, which I feel very lucky and blessed that I had attended a program in which movement and yoga were a big part of it. But um, I started to practice a lot more intensely. I um, started to practice ashtanga. And um, that that practice or that particular lineage is very regimented. Um, it's the same... Addictive? <laughs> addictive. <laughs> um, there's, there's a reason a lot of us addictive folks really like Ashtanga. Uh, but it gives a clear set of parameters as far as what to expect and what's coming next. And when you're recovering from any addiction, from any trauma, to know what comes next. And that predictability is... It's it's everything, and it also teaches you to sit with a very difficult um, set of okay. I'm going to do the same thing every day, and it's not going to be any different. And how am I going to work through my emotions while I do the same thing over and over? and over again at 5 a.m. <laughs> um, and it, it became that kind of thing for me. Like it, there's at one point my parents were like, Are you sure you're not replacing one with addiction with another? I'm like, Yeah, I kinda am, but at least this one's like kind of sort of healthy and or at least I, I thought so at the time. But you know what? It was it was a force that kind of like sailed me. It got me through a time where I needed to get through. And there was just something so beautiful about um you know the kind of practice in which there's no music. Uh, you're listening to the sound of your own breath. You're working with your own breath. You have to learn how to work with your breath. There are certain postures you cannot get into. Period. If you're not aware of your breath and where the inhale and where the exhale is, um, and it's the the first time where I felt the ex- the any ashtanga series is long. <laughs> you're going to be on the mat for at least an hour and thirty minutes. Um, so this is the first time I felt like. Shit, I can be on a yoga mat for a really long time. I can sit with my emotions and I don't have to like run to like the X lax we talked about. I don't have to run to the bathroom to get rid of the emotion that I'm feeling. And there was a lot of crying, a lot of crying in Shavasana, a lot of crying just in just general throughout the practice. But that, that became where I said, Okay, I think I've always flirted with with maybe I'll become a teacher, maybe I won't. And I, I ended up getting um Kind of leaving Ashtanga and going more into a vinyasa kind of world, um, and that's when I said, okay, I'm gonna become a teacher. But it was just very haphazard. Just I'm gonna sign up for this teacher training. I went through the motions. We weren't talking about social justice back then. We were like, yeah, we're talking about the you know the eight limb path and I
3: was gonna and, ask and
2: the, and the Jews and the do's and don'ts. But I think like now we can actually really take that and apply it to what's happening in the world because we're really having honest and open conversations about how the this instruction manual, these ancient yoga texts are this beautiful instruction manual on how to live life. So I think I, I went through the motions to become a teacher. I taught for a really long time, but I didn't like what I was teaching. I didn't like I didn't find any joy in teaching vinyasa classes, I guess. It was joyful at times. And people were like, oh, the class was great, this, that, and the other. But And that was your full-time
1: job at this time? No, no, no. No? I still
2: had my my corporate life. Um, I had like two or three failed attempts at leaving corporate America and becoming a yoga teacher, which I I suggest everybody to highly fall on their face and do that many, (laughs) many times until you figure it out. Um, But I think right around 2019... I just was working in a very pressure cooker job. This is after having my son Um, and just being in another corporate grind, like another one of these like fruitless, like, holy shit, how much longer am I going to have to do this shit? And this was an office job slash be out at events kind of job. And I just remember just, like, a lot of things going down with, like, them not considering me having a child and just making, like, no, like, almost like if my child didn't exist. And I was just like, what is this shit? Like, I can't do this any longer. I can't play this game where I'm going to negate a certain part of my life to, you know, make the make the cheddar for... Make the boss happy. Right, to make my (laughs) boss happy. Like, I have a a child and he's real and I kind of need to come home to him. And
1: give a shit more than about you do it Right, right. And then
2: (laughs) at at one point, I remember them um, having some type of, of summit for women and I was the only, one of the only women in the company that had a child and then they didn't, like, choose me to go to this summit. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm the only woman that has a child and you're asking women's opinions about how to make this company better. Why are you not picking me to go to this summit? And I just remember being so enraged and everybody around me being like, oh, she's such like such an emotional, such an emotional woman. Like, you know, like it's just, and I just was like, you know what? The five-year-old that wanted to know where the, where the fuck the women apostles were was like, I'm done. And I literally, um, I, I got laid, laid off. I was like the, the <laughs> nice, like, okay, lady, like, <laughs> I got laid off. Um, but you can, I could probably got myself laid off with uh, the amount of stink that I made. And then I just remember driving home that day and I just kept on repeating, I will never go back. 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 And I never went back. And it was just hard and terrible. And I couldn't find my voice as a teacher. I had been teaching for several several years but I didn't I know I I knew I loved yoga but I didn't know what I wanted to do with it and I had started a therapeutic yoga training right about um 2017 with my beautiful beautiful teacher Elaine um and I remember it being so different than Ashtanga, so different than Vinyasa and using props. And, you know, I had taken restorative classes before. I had taken propx classes before, but there was just something so beautiful about actually being still. <laughs> and I am not the kind of person to be to be still at all, but just I, I felt it in my body. I felt like, okay, you can have this range, just like we're talking about this range of emotions. You can have this range within what you do with your physical body. You can go run a marathon, but at the same time, you can you can rest, you can digest, you can restore, you can recharge. It doesn't always have to be like that, 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 that. And once I understood how that applied to kind of different medical conditions and she was just very much, she's like a master at scoliosis and back conditions, And I was just like, whoa, then the little medical student in me, the little, the little girl that wanted to be a doctor was like, this is fascinating and what do I do with this? Um, So I think right around the same time I got laid off from the job, I had just done um, a training, a yoga for cancer training and I didn't even know what I was doing. I was just like, let me sign up for this training. I'm like, what are you getting yourself into? Like, you don't want to go back to a hospital. You don't want to work with cancer patients. But I felt like, all right, this is a good way to test the waters to see like if I would be okay with talking about cancer, being around cancer again. And um, I went through the training, and I just remember just felt, feeling like this intense sense of excitement and hope. And like, finally I was like, okay, I'm gonna put my therapeutic education, like my 300 hour training together with this cancer training. And I just literally, I remember being in bed one night, and I was like, all right, universe. do something with this shit because I don't know what to do next and I applied for a job online that I found and it's a yoga job and it was just something about um you know like must have experience working with with cancer patients I was like all right cool Applied for the, <laughs> applied for the job, and I was like, okay, like a wing and a prayer. I won't I won't say where it is, but it's a very um, very well known place where I work at uh, now, a cancer treatment center and hospital. Um, but I I had to in the beginning, like kind of fake it till I make it, kind of thing. Uh, because you, just like you have any any skill set, you need to practice that skill set. And I just remember patient after patient that I worked with even if I didn't know what the hell I was doing or exactly knew how to put things together, they were just so grateful to have the opportunity to move their bodies. And that's where I was just like, holy shit, like this is it. This is every shitty job that I had working in a studio and teaching some power vinyasa class that I absolutely at the end was just like, okay, like they're saying the class was great, but this, I'm not feeling this it just, it was just like, boom, it was like, this is my life's calling and this is closing the loop. I'm, I'm working where I actually had treatment. Sometimes I sit in the same rooms where I've actually had treatment and I just thank God for time. Thank God for grace. Grace. Thank God for the architecture of the universe that it doesn't give you something until you're ready to have it. And I feel like the ingredients have always been there. The the curiosity, the creativity, it's always been there. My love for science, my love for medicine, my love for the human body, that's always been there. My love for yoga has always been there. So it was just like all the worlds collided at the most perfect time. And I just can't, I can't tell you what it's like to have somebody who's going through chemo or radiation and feel so disconnected with their bodies. Like if if the universe had you know given them a raw deal or given them a body they didn't want right now or didn't know how to work with their body at the time to see somebody be able to like, oh my God, I feel, I feel this. Like I feel joy and I feel appreciative of my body. And I didn't think my body could do this. I, I didn't think, sometimes I work with people that can't even sit up in bed and I've got to figure it out. I really have to figure it out. Like, how am I going to do a sun salutation with somebody that's flat on a bed? And there's there's a way to figure it out. And there's beautiful resources out there. And there's beautiful teachers. Giovanna Heyman, I'm very lucky and blessed that I've been able to follow him, that I've been able to, you know, just – he's a wealth of information. And a lot of times when I would have a patient that I didn't know what the hell to do with, it wasn't even my oncology teacher. It was my – accessible yoga teachers that I would go back to and read more, get more on the websites, do my own research, and, and figure it out. Because not everything that's out there is the instruction manual with how to how to do things. We, we've figured that out in our training. Does a plank have to look like this because XYZ said that it looks like this? Can it look a little different? Can we modify it? Can we put our knees down? Is that the same thing? So it's just been this just fucking amazing (laughs) thing that I never in my life did I think that I would be teaching in a more accessible way, that I would be working with cancer patients, that never, you could have never told my little self.
1: I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know that even existed to be a nurse. I didn't know you could go on Google and actually find a job position as a yoga teacher for people with cancer i didn't even know that was a thing to be honest so uh, neither, before meeting you <laughs>
2: neither 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 did i and then i was introduced to the world of yoga therapy which is becoming a lot more of a, not, not, a lot more of a thing nowadays for people that don't know what yoga therapy is it's really uh just taking a deeper dive into yoga meditation pranayama Ayurveda and different kind of practices and really looking at, um, from a medical lens, uh, different conditions, let's say multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, uh, cancer, depression, uh, sciatica, performance, just different maladies, different things that happen in the body and how can we work not only with physical postures to treat them or, or make things better for individuals, but how can we work with our diet? How can we work with our breath? Um, you know how can we work with meditation to look at an individual not as just a diagnosis but as a as an individual that has spiritual needs that has
1: and take into account everything and not just the numbers that are out of the chart and give a blue pill or red pill based on the numbers or whatever yeah they
2: get prescribed just... to some, most people when they have a condition it's like this is this is the prescription this is the condition these are the treatments these are the pills this is the medication and this is where you got to go and this is what you got to do and nobody asked the individual how do you how do you want to be treated how do you want to deal with your condition? Do you want to, that's one of the first things I ask somebody before I start working with them. We do an intake and what do you want to get out of this? Is it, do you want to just do a breathing practice? Do you just want to meditate? Do you want to move your body? Do you want more range of motion in your shoulders? Do you want to sleep better? Do you want to feel more connected to your family and your friends? Like I really, and sometimes it's not what I want to hear. Sometimes it's I don't want to have treatment. I want to face the last couple of months of my life and I want to learn yoga. Can you help me? <laughs> and talk about taking a step back and being like, okay, yeah, let's work. Let's work together and have no expectations and, and no outcomes of what I want that person to do. Because I, you know, there's li- a right, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's about, the other person and and it, it sometimes it's a tough it's a tough pill to swallow so to speak right, especially I, for
1: someone as emotional and compassionate as you i've got I've to <laughs>
2: compartmentalize um a lot when my patients are sick or when their their disease is advancing i have to i have to just hold space for what our plan is together and our time is together and how I can use our time to maximize and help them get through. What kind of tools can I put in their toolbox so that they can, you know, manage and navigate, be able to get through a CAT scan? Like, okay, let's practice some breathing techniques this week because I know you have this this MRI or this CAT scan coming up or you have, you know, this test or this family situation or family dinner or not so much dinner nowadays, but, you know, something that they have to get through. Um, and You know, we just feel... Figure it out, but you know, I think looking at human beings uh, from a holistic, um, just point of view is just a beautiful. They, I, I, they, by the people that I work with, teach me so much. I have about life. Yeah, have no perspective. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just sometimes I feel like they just have a better. They just have a better outlook on shit in in general. Um, and I rarely, I also rarely in, uh, tell them that I've been through treatment.
0: Mm-hmm. I was going to ask that. No, <laughs> so I, no, I
2: ha- I don't like to do it. I've only had a, a very small select, maybe one or two patients that I, I have because we've had actually like an acquaintance or somebody that we have figured out that has said something, um, just because Miami in life (laughs) is a small small city. um, Because I I think I did that once when I first started um, working in this field. And the first thing that the the person said was, oh, what was your treatment like? And how did you feel after this? And then how did you feel after that? And it's like, first of all, that was me. And that was 10, 20 years ago medicine has changed and and this is you, just like we know all of us can experience, have an experience and you take away one experience and Jeremy takes away another experience, we can all be in the same room and the three of us have a different experience right now, so why do I have to project what yeah. I went through? Yeah, it
1: won't bring any value to the person at the end, it's not even something you can compare and you won't, no. it won't matter. No,
2: and I'm there for a specific reason, I'm not there as a therapist. Uh, you know, from a mental health standpoint, I'm there as a facilitator of exploring, you know, meditation, movement, breath, and, you know, just integrating that into their their daily lives. I'm not there for my own personal yeah. agenda.
1: So you you work in an hospital or a cancer...
2: It's, it's both. <laughs> <laughs> you call it. It's both. Okay. No,
1: the, the reason I'm asking is... Uh, as far as you know, is that becoming normal to have uh, providing this kind of service in yes. hospital for post-cancer? Because I've never heard about it. So I wonder if it's yeah. just one an exception or if it's getting more and more normal.
2: Yoga therapy is a really um, emerging field. I think um, science does, doesn't like it quite a bit because it actually poo-poos on <laughs> medicine quite a bit. Um, if if you look into a lot of white papers, a lot of clinical studies on yoga, it's like great results, but but that that's a lot of scientific papers and white papers are like that as well. But you know, big pharma, you know, all these companies don't like it when they put out a drug and we'll say yoga can do the same thing that this this drug can do at <laughs> a fraction of the cost. Or, or at no cost, you know, at all, depending on how, you know, the, the treatment center or the hospital is funded. So it's, it's our healthcare systems are, are very overloaded, they're very stressed, they're very strained. Now with COVID, it's becoming a lot more uh intense so a lot of hospitals and treatment centers are looking at different ways of, of having more integrative care and and moving towards seeing the individual as as a whole and that's not just yoga that's art therapy that's music therapy that's working with an acupuncturist with a dietitian I work with a team of of people I I, I they refer me <laughs> they refer people to me I refer people um, to them and we work in an integrated fashion because we know what works for one person won't exactly work for the other maybe it's a combo of different things until we figure it out so i think this is this is hopefully the future of of you know healthcare. <laughs> i know we got a long ass way to go
1: that's yeah. no, interesting in I- these
2: systems but i think with something Um, like chronic illness, something like cancer, you do have to look at at the individual. I think in general we have to look at the individual uh, as a whole, whether we're talking about mental health, whether we're talking about... Healthcare, or well, I mean, life in general. Life in general. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's like, what we're not just these, some about health. These little it. clones yeah. that are just put through a copy machine, and then we'll, you school know,
1: job, work, e- every, everything. everything. Yeah, exactly. I
2: think as we shift as a society, we start to look more at, at people having individual needs and wants, and that's you know the, the beauty of what we do with the with you know the work at the foundation. Um, I also work, I don't know, as director of training and education for this wonderful program that you guys just went through. Um, But that's a lot of the work that we we do with Warrior Flow Foundation is, you know, going into schools, going into shelters, working with, you know, prisons, the police department is looking at individuals from, from the lens of they are not, broken you just because you've had this experience in life doesn't mean that you deserve any less than the person next to you you deserve the joy of movement you deserve to breathe you deserve to meditate you deserve all these other things yeah. well,
1: they're not broken or they're not machine in, in right. terms of like a uh, firefighter uh, police department or doctors and nurses uh, they are human being behind the uniform and
0: right. and, and, and with
2: very stressful jobs yeah <laughs> Right, it's it's funny. I just did a, a tr- uh, another training, I love a love of training, um, from the HeartMath Institute, a, a trauma informed training um, with uh, basically focused on healthcare practitioners and and breathing and coherence and how to bring uh, heart focused breathing uh, to professionals that are in really highly stressful. Uh, jobs and one of the sections of this training talks about right away that the biggest disservice that we can do to people that work in highly stressful jobs, uh, you know, that that deal with seeing a lot of critical events from day paramedic. To, yeah paramedic, um, you know, nurses, first responders is to deny their humanity and denying have, uh, expecting them to move through life in a robotic fashion without being attached or feeling love for and compassion for a human being that they see broken in front of them, hurting in front of them. That is one of the biggest denials that we can do to our medical professionals, to our first responders, is treat them like robots because they are not robots. They are human beings and they are seeing people at their most critical and vulnerable state and to expect them to shut down. And not, you know, have compassion in that equation is one I mean, of the... They're
1: hum- they all seeing things that I would see the once, I would <laughs> not deal with it pretty well. Because especially I'm crap with dealing with that. But seeing it as a, every day, as a job, I don't know, I'm mean, multiple but even,
0: times. Yeah, multiple times a day. So my best friend is a paramedic yes, and so she would that. go to like a car crash where a 12 year old boy is killed and then um somebody's house where the woman has been abused and then go to something else really traumatic, like three or four th- huge things in a day, and then have to go home, go to sleep, get up the next day and go to work without Pretend nothing harder. You know, without much therapy or talking about it or kind of the care for her. And that's just one person and, you know, it happens everywhere. And I can't like, I could never have that job because I couldn't imagine <laughs> being faced with that much trauma on a daily basis and just having to be okay with just having to deal with death and having to deal with abuse and injury and like all these different situations situations. yeah and just like you said be expected to be a robot and just shut it all off and not deal with it
2: funny enough my sister's an oncology nurse (laughs) go 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 figure out how life goes you know and she's got this ability i call it like the metal curtain that just comes up from the ground all the way up when she's dealing with with just when the shit hits the fan at work when she's dealing with you know they they call her like the angel of death because she's like the she's the calmest one when everything like when it's very funny because i like i'll talk to somebody and be like oh your sister works here like Oh, wait a minute. She's she's an oncology nurse. Oh my God. But my uncle passed away. Wait a minute. Is your sister? And it's usually, she's the one that was there when they passed or crossed over and whatnot. And she's just, she's got this way of dealing with things that is the polar opposite of me. But then you begin to wonder how much of that pulling up that steel curtain can a human being endure without it having, you know, so much of an effect. If, you know, really dig into it. If you look at at addiction rates with first responders, if you look at suicide rates, if you, I mean, there's some scary, 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 and that's just what we're seeing and not what we're really exploring and talking about. So, you know, why aren't we, why isn't every nurse and every doctor offered two or three yoga classes a week or a 15 minute break to go have a, a designated meditation room or a designated you know space where they can go detach put on some headphones listen to some music meditate roll out a yoga mat like why don't why don't we have yeah. why don't we have that
1: yeah and you you're, you're taking this example but yeah like you know something can be like bloodproof to a certain extent but eventually or waterproof to a certain extent but eventually it at one point I mean <laughs> it penetrate it. It, yeah. it, yeah. it
2: always pops up somewhere that's like the the box that we talked about under the carpet that square box that i tried to shove under the carpet thinking nobody's gonna see that big square ass box under the carpet it always it always pops it always pops up somewhere so i mean hopefully you know the hopefully this whole covid you know debacle that we've been in for the past year will start to shed light on a lot of a lot of mental health stuff, a lot of trauma stuff, and teach us that now that we've experienced this as a collective, there's not one of us that hasn't been impacted. Yeah, now we know. Now we know. Well, I mean, we're going to
1: have to, to be honest, because the consequence, now we've been dealing with the physical aspect and economic aspect of it. But once that's going to be over, we're going to be dealing for at least a decade, even more for all the mental health consequences of this shit and i'm seeing a decade for adults but for the kids growing up now uh, it's probably even be a lifetime work so i mean yeah it's 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 going to be more than needed it's going to be critical <laughs> uh, on a global scale i so.
2: i think so and i think it's um it's a call for us as as human beings to like start to really have these honest conversations where we talk about and normalize things that weren't normal before. What was it the other day, Adrian? Let, let's normalize crying, normalize this, yes. normalize that. Like let's normalize it. Like normalize a whole range of emotions. Normalize not being fucking perfect. Not always having your ducks in a row. Normalize losing your shit. Normalize failing at something. Not everything is success. Not everything is linear. Not finding your. Well, we can certainly tell that by my story here. Finding your path in life doesn't always look. Sometimes you gotta go through some shit. Sometimes you almost have to lose your life to you know. In certain certain aspects, you have to to burn it all down to the ground in order to find. Where you where you belong, but I'm all about I'm all about this having more conversations about the things that just make us really yucky, uncomfortable inside. Like if it makes you feel yucky, uncomfortable, chances are we need to talk about it.
0: So, seems though <clears throat> we're talking about that, can I ask a question that I'm scared to ask? Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> she um, know what it is. So you brought a bottle of alcohol round for us as like a congrats and some flowers as well as like a congrats on passing the the program and completing it I don't really know what my question was but like is that hard for you to buy alcohol for somebody else is it hard to see people drinking do you ever partake does, <laughs> does that, not, not even part well yeah I guess do you yeah. ever have a drink or is that yeah. something you completely avoid like um, how what, where are you at now in terms of everything that we've spoken about
2: I love that it was a little scary for you to ask me because it's actually really scary for me to answer but I will answer I, I don't won't you don't have to no 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 I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pass on this thing Um, I thought about this on the way here. I still, to this day, have a very slippery, slippery slope with alcohol Um, to the point where I I don't think I'm battling an an active addiction. Uh, But I think that alcohol plays less and less of an important, it, it is more a source of trouble and a source of shit show. Uh, for me in my life, I've thought that uh, you know, like if this is just something I can do, like every now and then, or for a special occasion, and da da da. And then I've realized just when I think I, it's something that I have control of, that it's something that I can't. It's just one of everybody has their things in life, and this is. I'm slowly creeping towards that. This is like the last of the last of my things. Um, and I've had a roller coaster ride. There've been times in my life where I've been sober for three or four years in a row, you know, being pregnant, having Jones. There's a really long stretch of not drinking at all. And then there's been stretches where, you know, it's been more of like a binge drinking kind of thing. And like a lot of people that struggle with alcohol, I'm a work in progress we're gonna we're gonna call call me a whip a work in progress uh and i think i'm working more towards just eliminating eliminating that all together in my life does it look perfect no no and for anybody out there that's um struggling with it um you're you're a lot more woke than you think you are i've uh worked inside that industry um it is not an industry meant to make us happy and healthy it's an industry meant to sell us some more shit to help us quote unquote forget about our problems but it just seems to glaze over the fact that we're drinking rocket fuel and that's actually it's ethanol is what's in r- rockets and it's just being marketed and sold to us as if it were nothing um, and usually marketed to women minorities they don't care they don't care just like Big tobacco didn't care. Big alcohol doesn't care either. Um, And what makes us... What makes me less of a person? Do I have less control? Am I like less of... Do I have less willpower because it affects me in this way? No, it just affects me in this way. Just like your thing might be shopping. My, My thing might be alcohol. Your thing might be gambling. Like everybody has has their things, I think it's just recognizing what their things are, uh, working on their things, and that doesn't always have to look like perfection. Um, I fuck up all the time. Usually when I fuck up, it's pretty good, but the important part is that I'm working towards not fucking up and eliminating it from my life, just altogether, I think that's the most important thing and to anybody that's counting days or counting hours um, if you fuck up doesn't mean that you're a fuck up (laughs) it just means you're a little bit more aware and you get up and you try again and you try over and over again until it becomes easier until there's more space in between and then maybe it's not a big thing anymore it doesn't have the hooks on you that it had before same thing with with food same thing with drugs
0: we can crop this bit out if you want to as well can i ask you about food because obviously with not obviously with alcohol but with alcohol it's easier to i'm trying to be very careful with my words it's easier to avoid why it's not necessary to live when food food is
1: a bit more of a
0: it's harder to avoid like you kind of need food to survive i get i mean i guess so i mean obviously feel free not to answer this how 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 do I question this? Like how What's does, your relationship does that with I ever food? show up for you or yeah. do you feel recovered in air quotes? Like, I know that's not really a thing. Like, I don't, I don't really know what my question is, yeah.
2: but I think, um, I don't, I, don't I, I feel much like sometimes a cancer survivor does not like to be known as a cancer survivor. I feel like maybe I don't want to be known as a recovered person because there's so much weight on that recovery. Just like there was all the weight and like, shit, am I going to fail at treatment? What if I have to go back again? I I mean, my relationship with food is so much better. It's just day and night to what it was before Um, I'm able to enjoy meals with people. Not so much during COVID, (laughs) but like I'm able to cook for people. I'm able to cook for my son. I'm able to sit down and have a meal with My child, I was able to go through pregnancy and not engage in an eating disorder. Like, those are, that's the kind of shit that's like, that's an epic win. I carried a kid (laughs) for the entire pregnancy, and it was hard AF to not want to engage in that behavior. It felt like, like we talked about, about taking the X lax and not going to the bathroom. That's what it felt like the entire pregnancy and also to see my body shifting and changing was not an easy thing. Um, but I have my times and I have my days and I know what my triggers are. I know what kind of people I need to go like this to and just say, no, 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 not going to not gonna be friends with this one. I don't want to engage in the, the gossip, in the body talk, in the slamming somebody else down. I don't want to follow this page because it's Full of shit and it just talks about diet culture and sells me this that and the other and tells me how not good my body is. I mean hang out on Instagram for an hour and just just watch your body be ripped to shreds by every single company telling you that your body is fucked up that your ass needs to be smaller, that your skin could be smoother, that your lips need to be plumper, that you should put this in your hair or change the color or da, 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 da. just hang out for an hour if you'd like your mind to be just the top of your mind to be blown off. So I just, I it's like I, I've tried to prepare myself in a way that it's not just what I'm consuming as far as eating, but it's a lot of what I, I, I consume upstairs, which can be really triggering um, in a food sense. But yeah, it's there every day. Every meal that I make myself, there's a temptation to like, wow, well, what if I didn't like... What if I didn't like put bread on the plate, or I'm feeling like really full? Maybe I overate um, with Jones, and you know, maybe I you know ate too much at a, a friend's house. Like sometimes, like the car ride home is like a little bit of a struggle, and you know, there have been instances where I've had relapses and I've and I've fucked up. But I don't I don't see it as a fuck up. I see it as okay. I'm able to get up the next day and say, you know what, this happened let's start over again
1: well you have more tools now the we toolbar. were talking about that before yeah we, we, we've There's been about talking that. about that but you, you <laughs> there is the awareness there is the, the you you've been educating yourself for a decade now about yeah uh, obviously everything you've been learning during the the treatment and everything you can reapply it. Uh, and also now because you're learning because just you want to help other people through yoga through the, everything else uh, you i don't know if it's aware right, but you're more in control or at least you you yeah. yeah you have more tools i think that's probably the best way to say it you you have more tools to see it coming to deal with it if it's happening and and if it happens to deal with it after yeah if it's not a total chaos no, after. You were... and the
2: and this shame spiral I would go down before would be like a shame spiral of like, oh shit, this happened. Might as well just you know abandon ship and just go go down a, a rabbit hole for a week of you know binge eating, binge drinking. You know, you know we can bring people into this equation. Too. I've had a lot of you know unhealthy relationships with, with people that are, are toxic as well. One, one thing can replace another, but I feel like the, the toolbox is so much more enriched. And I feel like with every book that I read, with every... This is, this is just like the most powerful thing. With every memoir that I read about addiction, with every memoir that I read about bulimia, with every book that I read about trauma, it is just like taking the onion and pulling it back layer by layer by layer by layer. layer, And then I'm meeting my true self. Like I'm finally figuring out like, oh, that's why that happened. And hearing other people's stories makes me realize like I'm not fucking crazy. Like this is, this is, I didn't make this all up in my, in my head. And I mean, I think, that's the most important thing. Some people are just so scared to see what lies beneath. And I, you are not the worst things that you've ever done. I am not the worst. You know what I've stolen or what I've taken or or the you know the the drugs or the alcohol or how I've you know screwed my parents over or the bad decisions I made. I am not that person. Those are just things that have happened. That's not who I am at the core essence and I think people get confused as all these things that have happened are who they are and they're not they're just shitty coping <laughs> shitty coping mechanisms and now the toolbox has much it's a it's just like oh it's like a filing cabinet and if I don't know what to do then I can let my community yeah, me! As well. I can I can, no, if, no, 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 no. you know, not that I would want to fall apart during the training and be like, hey, you know, guys, you know, why don't you just carry me through this really, really shitty uh, two or three weeks. But I know that I have I have people to call and to not be embarrassed if I've got to phone a friend. That there's no stigma. I know I've, I've amassed this beautiful group of people that I could call them with the craziest crap at two o'clock in the morning, and they would sit with me through through the moment. Um, addictions are not solved alone. They're not solved. They're not a problem. You can't read it away. You can't um, medical uh, treatment it away. I think the healing happens in the presence of, of community, in sharing, and that's that's where the real that's where the real stuff is. Our secrets make us very, very, very sick. The second we start to detach from those secrets and share and share shared experiences, I think. I mean, we've experienced it in this training. How many times have somebody shared something, and you're like, oh, "Thank God they said that," because that's actually what I was feeling inside, and I didn't really want to say it, and I would, or I didn't feel strong enough to say it. And then you identify with something somebody else said, or if somebody said something, and then it triggers something inside of you that makes makes things feel a lot less heavy. So I don't know, I'm all about that that open dialogue, (laughs) all about the the fill in the toolbox.
0: I can just say thank you so much for being so open and so honest, even with my scary questions and just with everything and just how (sighs) I'm, I'm literally speechless. I like I've just thoroughly enjoyed listening to your story. I don't know if that sounds wrong. We say it. that sound really <laughs> saying that?
1: No, we got the idea. I'm so sorry, sorry if that was offensive. <laughs> no, but like, do you know? What
0: i mean? like, I've just enjoyed sitting and listening. Like, I've not really spoken a whole lot. Just been watching you two talking, and it's just been. I can't. Get, I can't speak. No, today. but like we know, said before,
1: like, it's just some conversation that are necessary, and yeah, and
0: people don't like people don't talk about yeah, this enough, yeah. and I think that's that's what I've learned in this podcast as well. The most like the, the conversations that I enjoy the most are the ones that I never have usually. And because it's such an eye-opening, like, holy shit, wow, this is incredible. And I know it was, it's, it's been traumatic for you, but it's incredible for me to listen to and be like, oh, my God, like, I just learned so much from these conversations. So thank you so much for sharing. And I'm sure everybody listening has also learned a lot as well. And I hope I'm saying this right and not, I don't know. <laughs> Jeremy, <are> you take <laughs> it.
2: You're saying you're perfect.
1: <laughs> no, we got, we got it. We got the intention. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's always hard to it's always hard to... Phrase yeah. <laughs> things like that. Um, i got one last question, sure. uh, less heavy personal things. <laughs> it's just a question I like to ask at, at the end of each episode. Uh, <laughs> is um, if you could have a conversation with someone, dead or alive, famous or no, doesn't matter, that you think is one of the most interesting person in your eyes, why? Who would you pick and why? <laughs> Yow. I should recall the face. Of, <laughs> every time I ask that to a guest, you I should, the, like,
2: you, recall the face. You need, so the, <laughs> you need the the secret the secret camera here. Um,
0: Everybody struggles with this, so take a second, take a minute. Yeah. Like He just throws it at people and they're not expecting it. Hmm.
2: I think I know. Um... I would have a conversation um, with my parents as children. Wow. I, mm. I don't want a famous person. <laughs> I love that. I, 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 wow. um, that would be- I would love to talk to my parents as small children, maybe at the age that somebody hurt them or somebody walked out of the equation or or just some where their life was disrupted and turned upside down I would love to have a conversation with them and tell them how much they're loved how much they're appreciated how they like we said today are enough how they are complete and how they are worthy of everything and I know I know my parents. They're probably going to listen to this at some point. They're probably going to be hating half of the stuff that I've said um, in this interview. But this is this is an ode to them. They were little children, and somebody hurt them too. So I would love to have a conversation with them as small children to let them know that that it's okay, that they're good, good people, that they're worthy, that they're loved, they're complete, and they're whole. And look at these two badass children you raised. <laughs>
1: wow. That was a... Shocker. (laughs) No, that was a perfect answer. I mean, that's... Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for being an Open Book. Thank you so much for sharing such a personal... A lot of personal things here with us. Um, I'll link everything in terms of how people can get in touch with you. Everything you do. Some resources, maybe. It'll be cool to link some books and stuff like that uh so people can educate themselves and and or maybe get help and so far like so we'll we'll work on that <laughs> after the recording thank you so much sorry
2: anytime it was my it pleasure was a
1: pleasure to see you <laughs> In <person. What> <laughs> eventually treat. to meet you uh and yeah let's cut it off so we can give you a hug
2: okay <laughs> sounds good to me thank you for having me
0: thank you so much for listening everyone we'll be back next wednesday with a brand new episode as always bye